0: Everything about this moment in history seems uniquely designed to challenge our mental health. We are suffering, we need answers, and we need help. That's why I'm so thrilled to be partnering with Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound to host their new podcast series, Going There. I'm Dr. Mike Friedman, clinical psychologist and life coach. With Going There, I will talk with musicians who struggle with their mental health, just like us. After all, mental illness affects us all and the same artists who have stepped up to share their wonderful work with us are now sharing the intimate details of their journey in living with mental illness. We are going to ask the tough questions, and we're going to have the difficult conversations, all so that we can learn from each other. But more importantly, to shine a light on the difficult topic of mental illness so that we can all come out of the darkness and get the care we need. So we hope you join us on this journey. Going there. The Crossroads, where music and mental health meet.
1: Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center.
2: Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out.
3: Breathe in. Breathe out.
2: This is... Psychoanalysis.
4: This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm
2: Jen Adams. I'm Lara Understall.
1: And I'm the Babadook. I mean I am Mike I'm Mike, Sno- <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mike Snoonian.
2: Let me in. <laughs>
4: ah, Duke Duke Duke. Duke, Duke. Uh So cute how that little kid says Mm -hmm. it. We'll get there. All right. (laughs) Happy New Year, everyone. We hope you had a restful and happy holiday and that you're ready to kick off a great 2021. And I personally love this time of year because I can still tell myself that it's going to be a great year. And there's no evidence to the contrary. (laughs) Like I remember at the beginning of 2020, I was like, yeah, (laughs) this is the year of gin. And it was not. (laughs) But... But you know what? 2021 is going to be so. (laughs) But I know that I'm probably in the minority there and that not everyone loves this time of year, which is why we chose our first theme. Our mental health topic for this month is depression. Yay! Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Ah. And we are starting with one of my all-time favorite movies, The
2: Babadook. Yay! <laughs>
4: Sorry, that was like hey. a, sounded <laughs> really weird. <laughs> no,
2: that's okay. Maybe it was the Babadook that said mm. that. It could be at any given moment the
4: Babadook talking. That's true. You know what? If I ever say anything that's just not funny or weird, it was the Babadook. It's a good okay, to have you know?
2: have that as a fallback. You know, because <laughs> you really can't prove it that
4: it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. <laughs> ah, see, twenty twenty one is already off to a great start. can i can so. instead
2: of absolutely can i say baba Blu-, baba bloots <laughs> baba, baba, Lutz, baba Lutz, please. okay <laughs> baba ed- edit Lutz, that out and burn it in a fire <laughs>
4: okay sorry. oh i thought it was a it, it was just a weird thing the babadook said for a minute or two you know <laughs> i don't know what happened anyways but before we dig into this theme we are going to give a brief synopsis of the movie in case you haven't seen it or it's been a while so here's your spoiler warning Spoiler Duke warning. I'm sorry.
2: Spoil spoiler. No, but spoil, spoiler Duke. Spo- Duke. Yes. No, no. No. Let's just do it. I'm just gonna read the let's synopsis see to skip <laughs> again. Once again, ignore everything that just oh came out of my mouth. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we begin with Amelia dreaming of the night she went to the hospital to deliver her son. The same terrible night that her husband died in a car crash on the way to the hospital. Amelia wakes up and we meet her now six-year-old son, Samuel. He's a sweet but troubled kid who acts out by crafting weapons and performing magic tricks. Amelia works at a retirement home and basically spends all day and night caring for other people without a moment to herself. After Samuel sneaks one of his homemade weapons into the classroom, the latest in a series of school behavioral mishaps, the administration suggests hiring a monitor to watch his every move, further ostracizing him from his schoolmates. This is the final straw for Amelia, who pulls him out of school right then and there. Amelia is already having difficulties sleeping, and this is yet another burden, as she now has to miss work to care for him. With the shared date of Oscar's death and Samuel's birthday approaching, Amelia is in a bad spot. Her only support system is her sister, who is clearly over having to help Amelia and lets her know just how hard it is for her to be around Amelia and Samuel. Poor sister! Poor sister!
4: Where? Where? <laughs> Stay tuned for thoughts. On yes. Yeah.
2: One night, Samuel finds a mysterious book on the shelf. It's a dark and terrifying pop-up book about a cloaked Edward Gorey-like figure, Mister Babaduke, who scares you, then enters you, then makes you wish you were dead, just like my sex life. Am I right, ladies? <laughs>
1: What's a sex, sex
2: like? Like? <laughs> uh, To be honest, I don't have one of those either. Okay. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that, I did see that in the, before we started. It's
4: like, that's awesome. Because that came into my head when I was writing, and then he enters you. Like,
2: through It the is butt. what it is. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, any, any port in a storm. Okay. That, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. okay. All right, carry on. (laughs) Amelia, who coincidentally used to write children's books, has no idea where this book came from. She tries to destroy it, but it keeps reappearing, each time depicting more violent images, including Amelia killing her pet dog, her son, and then herself. And what's more, the Babadook seems to be real. Samuel is the first to see him, but soon Amelia starts to see a dark figure with long fingers and a top hat lurking in the shadows. Things begin to escalate, and Amelia finds her life spinning out of control. She alternates between lashing out at Samuel and neglecting him outright. A visit from Child Protective Services adds even more stress. After this, she isolates herself in the house with Samuel. She begins to have visions of killing her son and of her late husband, asking her to bring him the boy. Finally, the Babadook fully manifests and seems to possess Amelia, who begins to do as the book predicted— she murders their dog and then turns her wrath toward Samuel. Samuel, in an act of self-defense, stabs his mother and ties her up in the basement. As she experiences extreme fits of emotion and tries to strangle Samuel, he breaks through his, her hysteria by gently touching her face and reminding her that he loves her. Amelia is able to expel the Babadook and leave the basement with Samuel. But as we learn, you can't get rid of the Babadook. Amelia must confront the memory of her husband's death head-on, as it were, and sorry, and tell the Babadook to GTFO, <laughs> this time for real. After this violent confrontation, the entity retreats to the basement, leaving mother and son alive and mostly intact. A few days later, we return to Samuel and Amelia. For the first time, she's throwing him a birthday party on his actual birthday, seemingly putting the anniversary of her husband's death behind them. Before the party, Amelia goes down into the basement to feed the Babadook, a plate of earth and worms, before coming back into the sunlight to celebrate the day with her son. Aww. Aww. It's heartwarming. I know. It's so, ooh. It's a great ending, um, in my opinion, but we, we'll get into that. I,
4: I agree. Yeah, we've I've got a lot of thoughts on it. Before we do, can I go grab my slanket real quick? Yes. yes.
2: <laughs> I'll be right back. Gotta have the slanket.
4: So listeners, I just had to go get my slanket because I've got feelings about this movie and this is my (laughs) holiday comfort slanket. So this is where we talk about our first experiences with this movie and how it makes us feel when we watch it. We think it's really important to be aware of our feelings because that's the first step in us learning how to understand them. And we talked a little bit about this in our Gremlins episode and really in every episode. But I just think it's really important to identify feelings and it sounds a lot easier than it actually is, which is why we practice. So, Mike, what was your first experience with The Babadook, and how does it make you feel?
1: So, I adore this movie. I think this is one of the best original horror movies of the past 10 years. I think that, like, Jennifer Kent, the director, between this and her follow-up Nightingale, which is not a strict horror movie, per se, as much as it is psychological Terror, I guess. Um, in historical based terror. She definitely deserves to be spoken with as the same with the same kind of reverence as we do like a Jordan Peel or an Ariaster. Because this movie is just I mean, she just absolutely knocks it out of the park. Mm-hmm. I actually went and dug up my review for this movie from Fantastic Fest in twenty fourteen, ah. which is where I got to see it. And this is just a like a little snippet of it. So the Babadook is at its most chilling when it deconstructs the psychological turmoil of parentdom. When parentdom, when the Babadook is at its best, it holds a mirror up to parents. and reminds them of the times they've been completely overwhelmed by the task of raising a child, wondering what they did to get themselves into this horrid mess. And I will say, like I love this came out in 2014, which was the year that I got a handle on my own depression which almost cost me a lot of things. And as much as I love being a parent, it was a real struggle for the first couple of years. And I definitely didn't take to it as well as I expected to. Uh, I had like worked a job, right? A high stress job with a lot of time on the road, trying to balance a lot of different things and felt like it was just one more thing to add to the pile. So Until I got so, this movie hit me probably six months after I had really come to terms with it and had really gotten a handle on it. So it was, it was like, to me, one of the most chilling movies I'd ever seen at that point. And I think that it, a lot of times when you look at movies that like message based horror movies or movies where the monster is the metaphor, some of them do that at the sacrifice of storytelling and at the sacrifice of dread and atmosphere and scares. And it's like, we have one thing that we're going to hit over the head over and over and over again at the sacrifice of storytelling. And Jennifer Kent doesn't do that. The other thing is, I'm really glad we're tackling this one so soon after we did We Need to Talk About Kevin. Mm -hmm. Because watching this again, it laid out, something I struggled to kind of articulate when we covered that movie. Like we try to tackle the question, whether like Anna is like a bad parent and it's a really hard thing to judge or like, is she at fault for Kevin? How much Mm -hmm. of it was due to her parenting or lack thereof. And what I see in this movie is Amelia really struggling, but also really trying. Like Mm -hmm. she knows something is wrong with her son. She also knows something is wrong with her parenting. And she does the best she can, despite her depression and despite the challenges her son presents, to make it better.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And I think when we went with We Need to Talk About Kevin, there was so much denial going on or so much, yes, there's an issue, but we're going to push it down the road it has mm-hmm. always left like a bad taste in my mouth when it comes to like watching the parenting of that movie so i have a lot to say about this i'm going to cut myself short for now <laughs> because um i will go on for an hour otherwise
4: <laughs> and we're definitely going to get into that because i have mm-hmm. some thoughts about that as well but laura what about you when was the first time you saw this and how does it make you feel
2: Well, I actually remember seeing this movie for the first time (laughs) in theaters (laughs) in 2014. Uh, I, I, it really hit me hard. This movie, and I love it as well. So I really have a strong memory of seeing it in a theatrical environment on the big screen, which I'm so glad I did because there were, you know, I would describe the scares and the atmosphere as very moody and subtle, and that really, and they really benefit from a theatrical environment. Getting to be in the big dark room with the big screen, you know, I mean, there, and, and having that collective experience with an audience was just amazing. Every time I watch this movie, I, you know, I revisit it every few years, I, I feel like I catch something I never really noticed before, or find an emotional tone, you know, that resonates in a surprising way. It's kind of like I compare it to a song in my mind. And it's kind of like this wall of sound with all these different notes that are all really subtle and complex. And it, there's always something new hitting me that I just didn't fully, fully here or it was operating on a subconscious level. And I just think again, I agree with what Mike said about Jennifer Kent being at that level of, you know, and I and I do think that this really probably paved the way for someone like an Ari Aster, especially there Mm -hmm. was there's a lot of parallels in their work. I am not a parent. But Amelia does remind me of myself in a lot of ways, uh, just because of my own struggles with depression and trauma. And this story reflects a lot of my own fears in terms of not being able to cope with life's challenges uh, and of what I might be like as a mother on my worst days. And, and a lot of this to me, it's like you could have pulled this movie out of my out of my nightmares. And it, you know, it's like, this is why I haven't ever really wanted to be a mother, because <laughs> this is what I'm afraid of. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't trust myself in a fundamental way to take on that level of responsibility. And for that reason, the arc of this story is really gratifying to me. And especially watching it now, you know, this year, it rang really true to me. Um, just in the idea that our trauma and our emotional scars never really go away, but we can learn to cope. Even if it feels impossible, we don't have to go full Duke. <laughs> um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I also always forget how darkly funny this movie is, especially in the first 30 minutes. It's like the editing is really delightful and like witty and there's surprises mm-hmm. that make me cackle as we start to go down the rabbit hole with Amelia and but then it gets really like fucking freaky and disturbing and i just i love how deftly she navigates those tonal shifts i just think it's a it's a great film
4: I love the imagery in it, too. And you're right. Like there it, it's definitely like it's got its own style, which I think really serves the narrative of the story and kind of keeps it from from for a very dark story. It keeps me from going like super down the rabbit hole into devastated mm-hmm, you know, absolutely. in a way that a movie like Hereditary does. Yes. You know. This is in my top 5 of all horror movies. I absolutely love it. Um I remember hearing about it and the first thing I remember hearing was how terrifying it was that it was so scary. And I started watching it when my daughter was three and my son was one. So I was like deep in baby haze. And I was watching it, and I got to the point where they pulled the book off the shelf and they had read it. And then they heard start to hear the Duke, Duke, Duke at night. And I was like, nope, can't do this right now because I'm going to pull a book off a shelf tonight and read it to my child. And I don't want some monster showing up. And that was before I really had any idea what this was going to be. I just knew it was going to be scary and it was going to have to do with the children's book. And so then like a couple of months later, I decided to watch it again and I had taken a day off and it was in the middle of tax season. And my husband is a CPA. So tax season is like, it's just, it's really hard. He works a lot. So I, I'm not a single parent and I don't want to say that, but I'm alone with my kids a lot then. And I was also teaching. So I really was kind of relating to like, everything I do all day is for other people and when do I ever like have any moment for me so I was watching this and this was still my daughter was three my son was one and maybe he wasn't even one he might have still been an infant but anyways I remember this was like the best movie watching experience I have ever had because I watched it in, like I was so relating stro- so strongly to Amelia and we got to the part where I just said we because I feel like I was with her but got to the part where the Babadook is coming out of the, the chimney in her bedroom and all of the like clothes are falling down around her and like. My daughter was 3 and she was she had a really hard 3 and so I kept getting called into school to have to like talk about why she was screaming all the time. And so I watched this and it was like everything that fell down on top of her was like the note that I got home from the teacher or like the time that they called and said or like the time that I forgot to clean the bottles or something. And it was like it, it and I had to stop the movie and I just cried for like 15 minutes and it was such a cathartic experience and then I put it back on. And finished it. And just the way that this movie ends. It's like oh my god there's hope. You know it's such a hopeful ending and story. And I just remember. I I think it was just I watched it at the perfect time. And I wasn't even really connecting it with depression. I think I was just kind of thinking about it as mental illness and parenting. And I don't, I wasn't really even identifying as having a mental illness at that point, but it just, I like, I connected so strongly with how stressful it was for her and how just, just the realities of parenting. And now as I watch it, now I see, oh, that is depression. And It kind of helped me realize that I have dealt with that because I feel like I get so focused on some of my other stuff that I don't really think about depression. And I watched it the other night when I was having a really bad day and I was in a really bad mood and I just got my big cry out and I ended the movie and I was just, I felt better the next day, you know? This is, it's so, this is like a journey, you know? And I go on it and I feel like I come out better on the other side every time I watch it. So. All right, La- long rambly story <laughs> about that, but I just absolutely love it. And I know and this is another thing that I might cut out, because, but I kind of just want to get it out of my system. I've heard people that don't like this movie, and I am completely fine if you don't like a movie. Like, we don't have to agree with this, but the way I've heard people talk about this and the ending of it, that it's, like, dumb, and, oh, they're living in the basement, like, has really kind of hurt my
2: feelings, you know? yeah people are weirdly dismissive about this movie when they don't like it. I've noticed, I've just noticed that as a trend or like see people, people just say, Oh, it's stupid or it's not scary or whatever, which is just like, right. That's not why this movie exists. It's, it's a piece of art and you can choose not to like it. That's fine. You can have your opinion, but I just, I just hate when people are dismissive in that way in general. It's, I just think people are like rude and stupid. Um, right. That's just, you know, that's just <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> so. Right.
4: Well, and I, it's like, it always comes up with this one for me just because I think you're right. Like I hear people just be really dismissive of it. And again, like you're entitled to your own opinion and you do not at all have to agree with me. And it's fine with me if you hate this movie, but I just hear people talk about this movie is if people who like it are stupid and it really bothers me and so that's you know and, and
2: I think you know it re- did receive a lot of praise and hype at the time it, it kind of became iconic and it's I've heard the same thing in regard to a lot of Ari Aster movies anything that gets this mm-hmm. level of att- positive attention comes with this wave of haters you know and yeah and fuck the haters man like I'm gonna like what I like right. you know and I think it's a masterpiece so you know ask my D baby Uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
4: And I'll only just say too, like, just be careful with the way you talk about stuff, because like this movie really means a lot to me. So when people are really dismissive, it it just hurts a little bit. So, you know, just say your thing and keep it about how you feel about it.
1: I've been on the other side of that because there's like a couple movies that have come out in the past few years that are like sacred cows that I'm like, Mm -hmm. I feel like Jason Bateman's character. In <laughs> Arrested Development, whenever George Michael <laughs> is talking about Anne, mm-hmm. it's like, really? Her? Her? <laughs> Her?
4: <laughs> you mean Egg, like, Mandy... right? <laughs>
1: egg, yes. Like, Mandy and Host are two mm-hmm. movies that I'm like, I don't get it. And I'm like less veris- uh, vociferous about Host, kind of, because I think that, like, I really want to see that filmmaker go on to make other art. Like, listening to him speak, I'm like, I would definitely be interested in whatever you do next, even though this project didn't interest me. Mm -hmm. So I think that there can be, when we love something, we tend to like take it very personal when other people don't love it. And I don't think that anyone intends to do that. I don't think anyone is trying to call out necessarily fans of a a movie that so many people love. As much as like- Some people are. Just social media can, some people (laughs) are, sure. (laughs) But in general, I think that like, Sometimes if there is, you know, you just, like, wide, it's it's almost because the movie doesn't resonate with you as an individual, you tend to, like, challenge mm-hmm. it in mm-hmm. a way. And there are there some toxic aspects of that? I'm sure there are, but I try not. I mean, I'm someone that in general has, like, very odd and weird pop culture habits and things that I love, so that I know they're not for everybody. I also kind of like that the things I'm not into... There's a lyric by a band called M Blankets, um, the Methadone Blankets out of Canada, who had on a little tiny seven-inch that I went to 400 record stores to find back in the 90s. And it's a song about how, like, for a time, like, punk rock became kind of mainstream. Like, a lot of people liked it.
2: You're just like and a poser, man.
1: A like... <laughs> but it, no, But it was more about how when I first got into it, it wasn't like mm-hmm. that. And the persons that, like, were the reason I got into punk rock all of a sudden we're into it. And the lyric was something like, hold your secrets to your breasts because the last time they addressed you was a note that said you're going to get it at recess. Mm. And it's basically saying that, yeah, all of a sudden, I like having these things that mean a lot to me, but not a lot to everybody mm-hmm. because they feel really personal.
4: And I kind of agree with that. And I, I do recognize I have a really strong attachment to this movie book but- because of all the things that I just talked mm. about. And so I like that's partly on me is to be able to separate my own opinion from someone else. You know, like I have to do my part of that too. And I just think sometimes I'm better at it than others. Like as a like extremely empathetic person to a fault, sometimes mm-hmm. I just find it hard to I, I slip into defensive territory. But but and all mm-hmm. that to say is this movie is kind of a workout for those skills for me, you know, no. to really kind of, which I appreciate about it, is to really right. kind of separate how I feel about it and let other people think how they want right. to. Yeah.
1: And I think in two part, there's the whole debate around, like, let people like what they like. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, like, sure, like, absolutely. Like, you can let somebody enjoy things that maybe you're not into. But at the same time, I think that when that becomes your default stance, then why does criticism as an art form exist to begin with? Yep. Um you should be able to interrogate different forms of art and different products without personalizing it. Although like art is always going to be subjective and not objective.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: But there's a da- I think a real danger in saying like, well, People should be allowed to like what they do, and that's the the end of the discussion. No, yeah. and
2: I mean, obviously, I, I we are all on this podcast, and we, which is exists to interrogate film and how it relates to our emotions and our mental health. But I do, I I do agree that there's just no call to be like rude and dismissive. But I absolutely think mm-hmm. there yeah. is a call to express your opinion, whatever that may be, and mm-hmm. interrogate things. I just think it's always like, you know, and and the internet is the internet and people are going to be dicks and we all just, we got to live in this world and it sucks. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I just, I just think that like with, with, as with most things, it's about finding that, that middle ground and, uh, and just not being an asshole. And I think that that goes a long way. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, I don't want to
4: toot our own horn, but I think that we do a pretty good job of that. And I think a big part of that is because we start with a feelings check Mm -hmm. and we really can say, this Mm -hmm. is how I feel about this. And once you've identified that you can start to figure out why you feel that way. And that I think helps kind of, name the personal and also gives like Laura will say how you feel and then I can extend empathy there and know okay this means a lot to her i'm not going to be snarky exactly you know? exactly
2: and and i think that i'm i'm super conscientious of that and like i you know if i've ever overstepped that line i apologize and you know it's just something i care no, about no. you know and, and i mm-hmm. and i whatever i'm going to just start repeating myself here so um <laughs> yep anyways so we got a lot of feelings about
4: this movie and <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, and also all that to say, if you don't like this movie, that we still love you and that's 100% okay Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, now let's dig into our mental health topic for the month, depression. I'm going to really resist the urge not to say, yay, every time I say (laughs) depression right after. But just know I say it in my heart. And I'm really glad that we're talking about this because I feel like depression is a word that gets thrown around a lot. I'm also not cheering for depression. I'm just trying (laughs) to...
1: (laughs) Yeah, we are rooting for team. Depression. I know.
4: <laughs> There's a podcast called The Hilarious World of Depression that I always podcast. think about when yeah, it, it's a- It is, yeah. And I don't know if it's still on, but yeah, it's great. It's just kind of a reframing. So that's that's where that yay I think comes mm-hmm. from from me. I'm not a heartless asshole. Anyways, so I'm, I think this is a word that gets thrown around a lot, and I think a lot of us think we understand what it is and how it manifests, but the reality a lot of times is pretty different. So, Mike, can you tell us uh, what we talk about when we talk about depression? Sure. <laughs> Did I say that in a weird way? So we way?
1: need to talk about depression.
4: We need to talk about depression. See? <laughs> Yes. that's going to be my legacy
1: <laughs> that and sweaters I Ooh. can't look at a good sweater now and not immediately think I wonder what Jen would think about that
4: sweater uh, yeah like say if a Chris so. Evans were wearing it you know yeah. mm-hmm. All right. Olivia de Hussey you know yes I feel like I've, I've won now so you know mm-hmm. wrap it up Excellent. boys alright carry on alright
1: and again I'm still team Barb coming down with two buttons undone <laughs> Whiskey and I mean hand. she
4: she makes that blue chambray work shirt work.
1: She really you know? <laughs> does. She really does. Okay. All right. So depression. <laughs> so we need to be serious. We now. do. We yes. have to be serious Sorry. face. So this topic, depression. In some ways, it's like the easiest and also the hardest thing to talk about. Because it's probably the most common mental illness we encounter, like maybe this and anxiety are the two things that we talk about or see the most. But on the other hand, like there's so much misunderstanding and so many misconceptions around this topic that it can be like super difficult to sort through. So let's start with one thing that comes up a lot. Yes, depression is a real thing. It is a real mental illness that millions of people suffer from. It is not just feeling sad or bummed out. Mm. It's not something that people can easily snap out of if they just decided to. It doesn't go away if you exercise more, although exercise and movement can help alleviate symptoms. It's certainly not a made-up thing, and it certainly doesn't go away just by being told to cheer up and look on the bright side. Sadness is a component of depression, but it's not the only thing. So here's the thing about sadness. It's a normal human emotion. It can occur after a major life change, like a breakup, or the loss of a job, or things just like not going as you plan them out. However, even when you're a bit sad, you can still take pleasure in things you like, like your favorite song, watching a TV show, going out with friends for drinks when it's not 2020. (laughs) You know, when you're suffering with depression, these things like don't bring you relief you actually might avoid doing them or it might actually make things worse. With sadness, you can still sleep usually and you can usually normally function. Also, things like self-harm and suicidal ideation, they're usually not associated with like run-of-the-mill sadness. I do want to be careful to point out that depression can develop out of sadness after like, I have it here as a major unresolved loss, but what we talked about before with grief, or complicated grief, like if that doesn't mm-hmm. get resolved, that can mirror depression in a lot of ways. The big difference is depression is born out of your brain chemistry, and complicated grief is more feeling-based. And I, I mm. think that
2: that's really relevant to this film, because yeah. there is a grief mm-hmm. at the heart of it, or a, a loss. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. I would argue that seven years after that loss, there's something more going on.
1: Yes, Mm, Absolutely. mm -hmm. And I think, like, we were chatting Laura off air, like, we were kind of messaging one another in the notes. I think that, like, that'll be something we tackle a lot in a couple weeks when we talk about Lake Mungo, because I think that those two things are, like, the complicated grief and the depressive symptoms that stem from that movie, like, are really intertwined with Mm -hmm. that movie. All right. So when I think about depression or I talk about it, I try to break it down in a way where it's less about feeling sad. And I describe it as something about more how it weighs a person down. Mm. So the analogy that I use a lot with people is imagine that you were given a backpack. And in that backpack, every time you move around, someone's behind you and they keep putting like softball-sized stones in it one at a time. Everything starts to feel more difficult. It starts to feel heavier. It starts to become harder to do. So you're carrying this weight on your back with you at all times. Simple acts that you take for granted during better days take tremendous effort. Showering, eating your meals, just getting out of bed can sometimes take this like Herculean amount of effort and concentration to accomplish. When we're looking at the Babadook, we're looking at like a, the case of like what I would call major depressive disorder. And we could like drill deeper if we wanted to explore whether it's comorbid with post-traumatic stress disorder or postpartum depression. But because we've already covered PTSD and other episodes, I'm just going to kind of stick to the universal symptoms and strategies around depression in this episode. Otherwise, you know, we would be late for work. Tomorrow morning, <laughs> right. Basically. And I, I was right? going to say,
2: we, this episode, we could have analyzed this movie from the perspective of PTSD or grief. I think it would have been absolutely relevant to both of those. But I agree. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, I, like focus absolutely. on the depression angle for this. Right.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so what are the symptoms of depression like as a clinician what am i looking for well there's a number of symptoms i think you need at least five of them in order to get an actual diagnosis and one of them has to be these one of the first two here Hmm. there needs to be like a over the period of two weeks or longer there needs to be like a persistent depressed mood almost every day or a marked loss of interest or pleasure in activities or things that a person normally enjoys. So, if for like two weeks I ducked out of the podcast and I just didn't feel up for it, like I could be experiencing a depressive episode. This is something I normally look forward to doing. A sharp drop in your weight, like five pounds or more, uh, over like a two week period, when you're not actively trying to lose weight through like diet or exercise or healthy lifestyle changes or through a lack of access in food. What you see here is like, You lack appetite because you just have no interest in food at that point. You can't Mm. bring yourself to like eat or take care of yourself. Mm. Extreme fatigue or a lack of energy that persists almost every day. And this would be like one of the key ones for me. Like, just what if I'm feeling depressed, like just getting out of bed feels like a win for that Mm -hmm. day. Others notice, and this isn't something that you yourself notice, but actually other people notice and comment on like, Hey, you seem to be like moving slower or you're not thinking clearly. Like your thought process slows, your movements slow down, or they're reduced dramatically. Like it's visible to other people aside from yourself. You're haunted by these feelings of like worthlessness or excessive and inappropriate guilt for no reason, mm. diminished in a, diminished ability to concentrate, to think, or to make everyday decisions that you can normally make. And then finally. Uh, recurrent thoughts of death, uh, recurrent thoughts of possibly committing suicide. And this can happen without a plan or suicidal ideation, like with a plan or even making an actual attempt. Hmm. Suicidal
4: ideation is just a very bizarre thing that i've experienced Mm -hmm. like like i i used to hear those commercials about antidepressants like oh it might accompany suicidal ideation you know which seems like such a like oxymoron like that's the opposite of what you want Mm -hmm. and i like the experience of having those thoughts come into my head with no weight Mm -hmm. attached to them they just kind of float by is just bizarre Mm -hmm.
2: you know i've definitely experienced a lot of that in my lifetime Yeah, right.
1: And I want to stress, like, it's not an uncommon thing, and Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to be a scary thing. Like, I think people hear that, like, oh, my God, like, I have thought, like, what would it be like if I just hurled myself in front of the subway? Mm -hmm. And then my next thought was, like, I really want a burrito for lunch. Mm -hmm. All of us kind of have those thoughts or, like, I know, like, one person, not a client, but one person told me, like, they've thought, like, I wonder what it would be like to just not be alive. And it was just a thought they had. There was no plan. There was no intent to carry anything out, and then they went about their day. So I, I kind of want to reassure people that there is a difference between like having these fleeting thoughts and when someone's, you know, one of the questions I ask every section, every session, and we could be talking about like nothing of the sort. Like, hey, just checking in. Like, are you having any thoughts of like hurting yourself right mm-hmm. now? And that's usually how I phrase it, and it's like, yeah, I've had a few fleeting ones. Okay, like how often, for how long, do you have any plans? Do you have the means? And I've had cases where we've actually had to send someone to the emergency room, Mm -hmm. both students and adults. Um, And
2: from my perspective, even if I've had those thoughts, it's something I would choose never to share with a provider because I was afraid of it triggering like the men in white jackets kind of a thing. Yeah, Um, And, you know, because for me, depression is probably, depression and anxiety kind of being two sides of the same coin are the the major things that have haunted my life. And uh, suicidal ideation just has cropped up here and there, but I've never, and I know in my heart that I've never planned to carry it through. So therefore I just have chosen not to like bring it up in sessions because mm-hmm. I don't want to be penalized for it basically yeah that is a really is is a terrifying idea to me of being like some just taken away and disappeared or something like Mm -hmm. that and so I think that's a really hard thing that to have conversations around because I know as a provider you know you're a mandatory reporter like you have to take certain steps if someone Mm -hmm. expresses certain thoughts you know uh and and so it's just I just think it's something that I think it's good that we're talking about it. Cause I think that right. people, I think it's like the kind of thing you just like repressed and like shoved to the back of your mind. Cause you're right. like, no, not that, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's something that like, when it comes up in the session, like we discuss it and we just discuss like, well, what level are we at? And, mm-hmm. and most often it's just like, it's most often fleeting thoughts or I have them for a few minutes or a few times a day. And it's like, okay, well how do you get rid of them? Like what stops you? It's like, well, I love my family. I really don't want to hurt myself. I know them in a much better place than I used to be. And I really don't have any plans or a means to do so. So it's a much different conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've had like working in a school, it's obviously taken very seriously. And there have been cases where we've had to send persons out. And a lot of times like they are, there's a follow-up aftercare plan made, whether it's just better monitoring by the parent at that point. Sometimes it's a kid that just, like, they don't, they lack the expressive language to really communicate their feelings. So, you know, we take it very seriously, and, yeah. but we also at the same time don't want to scare anybody. Because to your point, yeah, like the minute, what was that? That's that movie by Soderbergh. saying like, yeah, insane, I think about that shit what, all the time. Yeah, that yeah, movie like, got
2: to me really badly yeah. for that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember seeing that scene, I'm like, this wouldn't happen like this, yeah. like that. But that's the point of the movie.
4: Yeah.
1: So I, I can totally mm-hmm. get that.
4: I've had that conversation with my therapist this year, actually, because I was just starting to kind of scratch myself and it wasn't ever really, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to diminish it because it is what it is, but like, I, mm-hmm. and I was so afraid to talk to her about it for exactly what you said, Laura. I was like, she's going to have to call people there because I have been referred mm-hmm. to, to an inpatient facility mm-hmm. when I said, I wonder what it would be like if I just took all of these pills that I had and, and it mm-hmm. was the right thing for me to go at that time, but I just talked to her about it and I was really surprised at how she wasn't nonchalant but it wasn't like oh my god you're like i've got Mm -hmm. the white coats weren't triggered you know and and we just talked about it and now it's easier to talk about with her Mm -hmm. and she just kind of checks in like how's it going and she also said go hold an ice cube next time you want to do that go hold an ice cube because it's the same Mm -hmm. stimulus but it not actually affecting it's not hurting i don't know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I'm, i've
1: never heard that that's really that's yeah
4: it, it actually helps because i mean it hurts to hold ice so it was like mm-hmm. that that sensation that i was wanting without like damaging my body right you know. so less
2: permanent mm-hmm. or not permanent but like you know you don't break the skin of yeah exactly
1: yeah i honestly like as a clinician have an easier time working with someone who's expressing like suicidal ideation than like self-harm really like i don't know what it is like i just find that easier i think maybe because there's like a little bit more of like a clearer roadmap so my head can go like we can go in this direction or this or this and with self-harm sometimes i just find it a little bit just more difficult to help i guess yeah Um, although like we end up especially because like it comes up a lot more with kids Mm. so there are things that we do but I just like and again it's just like where I'm at at a professional level it's nothing about the persons it's really like my own Strengths and weaknesses as a clinician. So,
4: well, and I want, I'm having to stop myself from asking you a million questions about self harm and suicidal ideation because I'm just fascinated with it as somebody who's experienced it. I imagine we'll probably do a topic on those things.
2: Yeah.
1: I was going to say, let's save that for the QA for (laughs) patrons starting in 2021, you know? Yeah. Uh, Because
4: I don't want us to sidetrack because I know that this is just kind of one manifestation of depression. Yes. Yeah.
1: So, i will i'll move away from that and say like other ways oppression presents itself in an individual like what do you see like they're often moody or irritable like they might tell you to maybe they might suggest that why don't you just go eat shit for <laughs> yes, i have this um,
2: myself That <laughs> can be very yes. irritable <laughs> ir,
1: ir, mm-hmm. irritability is my big one yeah that is like most often like when i'm really depressed like that is how it shows itself yeah me too in one of my triggers, if I think things are like really cluttered, I'm like, why are there all these boxes around? And my wife will point out, it's like when your like mood is off, like you notice the clutter mm-hmm. way more. That
4: drives me insane too. And I'll just walk mm-hmm. around and be like, "Why is there shit everywhere?" I can't think mm-hmm. when there's shit everywhere.
2: Yeah, and I hadn't put it yeah. together. Forever. But like when, <laughs> well, because I live alone, I find myself in a cycle of generating clutter and then getting exceedingly mm-hmm. upset at myself that things are cluttered, and then I feel like I can't breathe and I freak out until I mm-hmm. manage to clean things up mm-hmm. till I feel less crazy, and then I I notice yeah. that I go on this cycle as my depression builds and. De- Plates over the course of the week so mm-hmm. i'm in a hell no. of my own making well
3: no.
4: when i think when you were talking about the rock carrying the rocks around in the background i was the backpack i was thinking i think of it as like you know when you have a crick in your neck and like every huh? movement hurts and like i just have this image of like driving around and wanting to check behind me and i can't because my neck hurts and it just makes me so irritable and frustrated. Like I just I imagine I walk around and it's like there's this crick in my neck all the time and yeah. everything hurts and your voice is too loud and there's too much stuff in my way and it's just like it won't go away. And there's no reason. Mm-hmm. It's not like today is any different than the other day. It's just You see
2: me it's know. just a rubbing my neck is because my, oh, I know yeah, my neck, neck hurts, hurts really <laughs> badly right now. So it's just I speak oh, of the devil. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> people with people with depression may demonstrate excessive worry about their physical health. And fixate on minor aches and pains. <laughs> yes, then. Oh my so God, damn it, perfect. Mike! <laughs> that was perfect. Wow.
2: Um, I, well, it is because it's again. It's a, you do hold these things in your body, and I know, I know for a mm-hmm, fact that mm-hmm. I have a lot of neck and shoulder pain as a result of my anxiety and my depression, and Absolutely. I hold it all there. And it's Absolutely. but knowing that doesn't mm-hmm. help. It just still mm-hmm. fucking right. hurts. And like yes.
4: <laughs> anyway, I'm yelling. Yep. I'm like sorry. the quote from Parks and Rec: "Everything hurts, and I'm dying." <laughs> like I yes. want to post that meme all the time and i just don't because mm-hmm. you know
1: you might be more brooding than usual like you're either a 14 year old goth listening to the smiths <laughs> or oh you, you know you might be depressed
2: why not both that's what i always say pork,
4: pork, exactly. pork Yeah. yeah. okay now mm-hmm. would you say brooding i think about it as spinning is that the same thing where you just kind of turn things over in your would mind you call that, you that
1: rumination right I think that's a really good, yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at it. Yeah, I think
2: rumination is a hallmark of depression. And it's the same thing as fixating on those thoughts and just, like, you're just, Mm -hmm. you're you're like a cow chewing a piece of cud. That was something that my therapist spoke to me a lot about, so. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then, like, what are the risks? Yeah, last thing on this, like, and we're going to talk more next week about, like, treatments Mm -hmm. and, like, things that can help. I'll touch on antidepressants a little bit. Like, again, I'm not a prescriber, Mm -hmm. so... I'm always like hesitant to talk medication um, just because I don't prescribe to it. And again, talk to your doctor or a psychiatrist or your prescribing nurse, like someone that can actually go into more detail when we talk about that in a couple of weeks. We'll talk about some things like the cognitive restructuring and things like that that can be used. But lastly, like some risk or some like predictive factors that might say, like, are you more prone to experience depression? certain temperaments like neurotic persons are more susceptible to depression just because of the way they ruminate over stressful life events
2: i would argue that's a chicken or egg scenario are you neurotic because Mm -hmm. you're depressed or are you depressed because you know or or does neuroses a subclinical manifestation of a genetic predisposition for Mm -hmm. depression i mean to me that's something i thought about Mm -hmm. this a lot just because of my own fucking issues and you could say that's Mm -hmm. a neurotic line of thought But uh, whatever, (laughs) Um, it's fine. I'm just, I'm all here in the corner. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And it's important, like, not all neurotic people are depressed, and not all depressed Mm. people are neurotic. Mm -hmm. So you're right. I mean, it could be. It could be one of those things where, like, the neuroses you have like, can trigger depression, or they could be, you know, exacerbated and made more difficult because of depression. It's harder to kind of break out of those neuroses. Like, mm-hmm. It could be both. Again, um, why not both? Why, again, <laughs> that should why be the subtitle both? of this episode. <laughs> um, yep. Mm-hmm. There are some genetic factors at play. Like, if you have, like, if you are basically, like, if your parents have depression or your grandparents have depression. You're two to four more times likely to have it, but it's not a guarantee that you're going to be just because, like, your dad might have been depressed. It's not set in stone that you will be as well, like, mm. your own person and not your parents. Mm-hmm. Some like modifiers, like substance use, there is like substance abuse, enacted depression. Um, it's often comorbid with anxiety and trauma as well. Mm. So, those can be factors. Uh, And also, like, environmental factors. Um, And I just put on my notes, like, (laughs) not trees. And I'm just like, I I think I was, like, by that point, I was really tired. I'm like, I'm so sick of doing notes because of all the shows I'm doing. (laughs) That's
4: some gin humor, though. I appreciate it.
1: (laughs) Yes. So, But environmental factors, like socioeconomic, um, things of that, like the environment in your home. The environment in your school like things like that mm-hmm. can also make you more predisposed and again it's not a hundred percent like it's not a one-to-one correlation mm-hmm. um but you know those are those are the just things, like with so...
2: psychopathy i mean it's just that these things are always a soup there's so mm-hmm. many i mean i think if that's going to yeah. be a recurrent theme you yeah. can't ever be reductive mm-hmm. when it comes to these things there's so many factors at play yeah 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 well and if
4: i'm thinking about like my own experiences like I don't really think depression is not the first thing that comes to my mind. You know, I think PTSD mm-hmm. and I think everything else is just kind of in the soup that is flavored mainly with PTSD, you know? And then mm-hmm. But I mean as you're going through all of that I'm like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Tick tick and it's, tick. It's you know?
1: one of those things where like I cut out the part about measures and I will say this for the thirty seconds. What I like about measures for depression, like we do one at our initial intake. I like to More than, like, depression and anxiety more than anything else I treat. Like, I like to, like, every quarter just break that measure out again to see if the treatment is actually working. Mm -hmm. Like, have the levels, like, have they tapered off? Have we seen any improvement? Because it gives a chance to have, like, a nice, honest discussion with the client Mm -hmm. at that point and say, like, is what we're doing working together? Do I need to change the way that I approach things? Like... What's going on? Like, How are you feeling? So I find like those the measures for those two mental illnesses, I find easier overall to kind of like get a real feel for like, where are we at right Mm -hmm. now than some others? And it might just simply be because, you know, that's most often what we're dealing with. So I just found that interesting as well.
4: When you say measures, you're talking about measuring how, like, the extremity of the depression, is that what you mean? Yes. Okay. So
1: there's, like, the PHQ-9, which are nine questions that you, uh, rated from, like, zero to three on the severity of each symptom. And then there's, like, Beck's Depression Inventory, which is, like, a Mm 21-question measure. And again, it's just, like, things you ask and you rate it, like, not at all to, like, this every single day really badly. Mm -hmm. When I work with kids right now at school, every conversation starts with, let's do a check-in, one to five. One, it's Christmas morning and I got everything I wanted. Mm -hmm. Five, oh my God, my hair is on fire right now. Someone help me. Yeah, Where are you at? Mm
3: -hmm.
1: You know, so, um, and I'll give examples like, I'm usually at a two and that means I got a little bit of stress and work to do, but I can handle it. But lately, I'm at a three, three and a half. It's mm-hmm. a little bit overwhelming. Yeah. Where are you at? And I think that's kind of helps the kids out a little bit to say where they are.
4: Yeah. That's a, it's like that pain scale when you're in the hospital and they say how much mm-hmm. does this hurt, and and then that goes back to the feelings check. It's just like here's where I am. I'm acknowledging this. This is the reality. Now let's do something about it. You know, right. which is the first step. Well. I could talk for a million years about this, mm-hmm. but let's...
1: Oh, we got a movie to <laughs> We talk. do, and you know what? That's we're still movie to talk about.
4: <laughs> so let's get into the specifics of this movie, and I think the easiest way to crack into this is to start with Amelia. Because, I mean, if I were treating this movie, I would imagine that she would probably be the primary patient. As a, or any of those things actual words that <laughs> clinicians say? No, I get you say, saying. Yeah.
1: No, I get what you're saying. Like, when I... You know, there's, like, two perspectives. You could look at treating Amelia. You could look at, like, you know, we could do ADHD or even, like, the autism spectrum Mm -hmm. and look at Sam. But I think when I watch this movie, I'm looking at it at the perspective of, like, Amelia's experience. Yeah, she's the central
2: point of view of this film, in my opinion.
4: She is, yeah. And I just, oh, my gosh, like I said, like, just she has my heart. And every look on her face, it's like, oh, I've been there. I've been there. I feel how you're feeling, Mm -hmm. you know. She just... And the performance is amazing. Yeah. I love, like, the vulnerability, yeah. but, like, still the kind of the scariness and the way she slips mm-hmm. in and out of those. Like, I just always think of the, her face in the mirror when it's, like, that vision of the news, you know? And just that evil That's one yeah. of my favorite smile. shots oh my God. in any... That was
1: going through my head right now. Yeah. It's terrifying. It really is. It is the scariest yeah, it, thing. Mm. It's It's so... Because there's such madness in that. That's not a word I ever use. Mm. There's such, like...
2: But it's giving me chills. It's, 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 it's that fear <laughs> yeah. of your own inner madness, like, made like mm-hmm. flesh. And I... Because I, whenever I think of this mm-hmm. movie, or I've, like... There's been plenty of times where I've forced whoever I was dating at the time to watch this movie, you know? And I'm like, pay attention to this part. Like, that's always the part. Like, that whole sequence basically, you know, stemming from when she thinks she sees... Sam dead on the couch through that mm-hmm. shot in the news. I'm always like, shut up, watch this part, watch this part. It's really, mm-hmm. oh, it's really upsetting, and like, you know. So I, it's it's masterful. Mm-hmm. And Essie uh, Davis, the the actress, I think is. I mean, this is a, a hell of a fucking performance. I guess I just love yeah. a blonde woman keening in grief. If uh, if I'm <laughs> going off of Midsummer Hereditary in this movie, so <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I think she went to school
4: with Jennifer Kent, so I think they knew each other very well, and I think you can see that in the performance, because it's mm-hmm. like, there are very few characters, like this This movie lives and dies on Samuel and Amelia's performances. Absolutely. And yeah. I think they both are just phenomenal. And we're going to talk about Samuel in a minute, but yeah, just like the nuances, and like you said, Laura, every time I watch this, I find something different. And the thing one of the things that stood out to me this time was the trigger when Sam like touches her or like nuzzles her. And I imagine that it's a way that her husband did because even at the very beginning, she says, don't do that. And that's something that I've experienced with my own children when they just want to touch me. But it's just like it's a triggering thing. And there's so much guilt that goes into that. You know, like I want to be able to hold my kids and have them touch me in any way that they want to. And it just is frustrating that they can't but you know that's where we are and then we go
2: forward and there's a concept that i encountered once upon a time in couples therapy of the idea of like there's in every relationship not even just romantic relationships but there's a minimizer and a maximizer and this is often modeled on Mm. our parental relationships where you seek love and the other person one one part one party seeks the love and the other party kind of withholds it, you know, and like and, and it's this mm-hmm. dance that you go and you retreat and you advance and you retreat and advance and I mean I see sa- the way that Samuel behaves with his mother in this film is it's really I mean sad and we can you know I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves by talking about Samuel but um, just that that his way that he clings to her and, and it's it's like he knows that she's not just not that into it you know <laughs> and mm-hmm. and and it's got this desperation to it that is incredible incredibly, incredibly sad to me. And, and just yeah. the way that she just can't fucking handle it. um, It, it, it really speaks mm-hmm. to the, the tension in their relationship. That is the whole, you know, theme or. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And that, that clinginess, it, all it does is it makes Amelia's own exhaustion so much worse mm-hmm. because yep. <laughs> she can never have a moment to herself. Exactly. Like she mm-hmm. hasn't, one of the things that really hit me upon rewatching at this time is that first scene where Sam gets into bed with her and he's like so cuddled up in her that like it it's painful. Like his fingers in his sleep are like digging into like Amelia's shoulder. Mm-hmm. Like his mm-hmm. feet are like kicking into the back of her. So but when she pulls away from him, she cannot she doesn't just put distance between the two of them. She gets as far away from him as she can. Like she, if she got mm-hmm. any closer to the further to the edge of the bed, like she would spill out of it because she just needs to be apart from him.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: She can't masturbate she can't like have like a moment of pleasure and it's a really well set up scene where you think like oh great here's where you see the monster and i think like one of the things that's great about this movie is like you don't see the babadook until like minute 49 of a one hour and 34 minute movie
2: and i'm so glad they did it or they would have blown their load and it would have been a huge bummer sorry i'm disgusting oh yeah no it's all right
1: (laughs) it's like it's a great moment where you think like this is where they introduce the monster and nope it's just like Sam getting into bed with her when she's trying to just like use her vibrator.
2: (laughs) Right. Right.
4: Because the parenting situation is the monster Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, you know, not that Sam is because I, you know, have a kind of a soapbox about how people look at Sam that we'll get to, but like, Mm -hmm. he's not really the problem. The problem is the situation. And it's like that environmental factor that we were talking about Mm is that she is just way too overwhelmed and she doesn't Mm -hmm. have any support. And and like as the person who's been the the withdrawer a lot, like that clinging on, it just it's like so overwhelming. It's like I know what you want me to be, I can't be mm-hmm. that, and so I just can't be around you because then the reflection of what you want me to be and my failure to be that I see in your eyes, and I just can't, I just can't do it. Mm-hmm. You know,
2: it's a, it's a classic like dynamic that I think you see spring up in relationships, and it's where mm-hmm. you have two peop- two parties who don't have the vocabulary to. Articulate what's happening on an emotional mm-hmm. level, yeah. and especially when you're in the caretaker role, so much of that emotional burden is put on you. And and I and I do see this, you know, to to tie it back to depression here with Amelia, she is has this unresolved grief from the loss of her husband that is so tied up in the birth of her son, and he embo- mm-hmm. and he embodies that loss, and that she has to look at every day. And and I and I do think her grief in this case has become major depression you know um, I think yeah. it's clear in in her eyes and in her exhaustion and in that feeling of of you know and all the things that we sort of articulated I don't know if Mikey wanted to talk about that a little bit
1: the thing about like the death like her husband's death and Sam's birth I definitely have a point of that when we talk about Sam because there's a couple of things that really struck me as really heartbreaking this time mm-hmm. the one thing that like you pointed out in the synopsis was how she works as like a, a nurse's aide in a retirement home and she's basically at the beck and call of these elderly patients like for her mm-hmm. whole shift. There's that moment where she's like just wheeling a cart of tea around and one of the patients like snaps at her because there's milk in it. And she's like, "Well, I guess I'll fix it." She never in her job in her home life even when she gets home, she's like, oh, she takes her neighbor's um, garbage out for her. There's never a moment where anyone ever tends to, when, to Amelia's needs. You see it mm-hmm. in the relationship with a sister. Yep. Where her sister mm-hmm. will go on and on about her problems, but she never asks about Amelia's. She never mm-hmm. is like, geez, I bet it's because she's, she's like, part of it is like she's over it. Like she's, I know what your problem is. It's your husband who's dead. It's been seven years. Get over it. Yeah. And Amelia's Mm -hmm. like, I don't even, I am, I don't even talk about him around you because I know it'll upset you. So there's no relationship in her life where she's able to get any relief.
2: And I, just on that note, I mean, as someone who has has dealt with depression a lot, lot, you know, I, I find that it is, it is a, probably the number one factor in that, that I've struggled with in relationships In general, and and I think you see this here is that her, you know, the sister being over it is a classic hallmark of how people relate to people with depression, you Mm -hmm. know. And it's like Mm -hmm. I need. It's like you're crying out for help, and it it makes me think of this Stevie Smith poem called "Not Waving But Drowning." It's like I was too Mm -hmm. too far out all my Mm -hmm. life, uh, too cold always, not waving but drowning, and it it's just like you're crying out for help, but people the nature of depression makes people resent you and it makes mm-hmm. people yeah. and, and it and it it defies it defies people's abilities to to provide emotional support because like you pointed out while talking about the symptoms being with other people and and doing all those norm quote-unquote normal things uh socializing and yada yada it, it all it can sometimes make things worse and so it's this really difficult thing to live with and in, in a persistent and long-term way and i think you see that depicted so elegantly in this mm-hmm. in this relationship with Amelia and her sister is just like the nature of her issues poisons her support system and right. yeah and you know it, yes her, it, her sister's kind of an asshole to her but also it is really really hard to help someone who is living with this level of depression so mm-hmm. you know it kind of it, and it's just it's just so challenging and I and I think that I just th- love the depiction of it here I think it's so smart yeah.
4: I do, too. Yeah. And I think the thing
2: about the sister is like because like you said,
4: Laura, I can understand her like if this has been seven years and it is not it doesn't seem to be getting better. Like I understand that and I understand not wanting to be around that constant need and the constant sadness. But that's the point where you say, okay, this is more than I can handle and i think we talked about this when we talked about midsummer like this is when you say okay you need to talk to somebody else and it just blows my mind that nobody thinks to like suggest that she goes to counseling or get help or with samuel too like mm-hmm. where are the people that are saying hey c- you should talk to someone like this mm-hmm. is serious this is real it just seems like everybody except Mrs. Roach wants her to just be over it right. and move on. And and if that's all the experiences that you're having from everyone, I imagine not wanting to go talk to Mrs. Roach about right. it because it'd just be the same thing. And she's going to want to talk about your husband. And we'll probably get into the denial in a minute because I have some thoughts about that. But
1: there's There's sorry. also this inability to kind of accept help. Like we see it early on uh-huh. when she's called into the school. And I've had to sit in on the school side of that meetings where you have to have meeting with the parents and discuss school behavior. I've been called into my daughter's school once when like she turned over a test too soon. That was timed and the teacher gave her a zero and I went into a meeting and I'm like, you're never going to give my kid a zero again for that. Let's just make that clear right now. Like this is what you're going to do instead. But from the school perspective, like, Sam brought a crossbow to school.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a big, it's a big deal. <laughs>
1: a working crossbow. Right. That's a big deal. So they're offering her help. Like, look, we will keep him in the class that he's already in. He won't be separated. He will have like a one-to-one instructor to, that'll be there. So he'll have a behavior plan and he'll have probably like a chart. He'll get benchmarks and he'll progress from there. And she's like, no, we're not going to do that. Like he's already too picked on it's like well tough like the reason why like he is is because like he's again bringing a crossbow to school kids know stuff like that so and to the to the teacher who you know like i think we're meant to see that scene as like look how heartless the school is and how they don't care but the teacher is like and jed you know this because you've taught
0: you Mm -hmm. know like
1: there are 24 other kids in that teacher's class that she has to like maintain the safety over and like sam is definitely like he's a well-meaning boy he's a very sweet boy but he's also a bulldozer and mm-hmm. you can only imagine how many times he was in class and he's in first grade so the teachers are probably like all right we're gonna like work on our phonics and he's like i'm gonna smash the monster like and nothing could redirect him from that and mm. Amelia's reaction was like, well, I'm just going to pull him from school.
2: And, and to that point, yeah. I, I, this is what it hit me this time, especially in the wake of talking about these those killer kid episodes, and we were talking so much about um, how to help children mm-hmm. who have these kind of issues I don't think Sam has that kind of level of psychopathy at all but it's oh, but, God, but, no. but at the end of the day if you bring a crossbow to class you know the proof the, you know it doesn't really mm-hmm. matter what's causing it all they see is, right. is a weapon and Amelia Amelia pulls him out without a plan in place therefore yeah. adding another burden to her plate mm-hmm. rather than saying like okay well he's going to mm-hmm. deal with this for a few weeks while I you know figure out another yep. plan for him or anything she instead takes the burden onto herself and, and I was going to save this for the other mental health topics, but I do think it's important to note for Amelia that She's really bad at, like, setting healthy boundaries or having yeah. a plan in place. And you could argue, again, is because she's overwhelmed. She's just kind of mm-hmm. reacting and not planning. Mm-hmm. But it, I think that that, you know, she sends mixed signals to Sam. She sends mixed signals to the, probably, the, you know, if we're seeing it in this one instance, it's probably not the first time in her relationship to mm-hmm. authority with her when it comes to her son. And I think that contributes to her sense of emotional depletion, which contributes to her resentment of Samuel, which contributes to his clingy and bizarre behavior. And it becomes this like vicious cycle. Um, And I think that we are seeing the moment we come into this movie, we're sort of seeing the tail end of seven years of doing that kind of reaching ahead. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that
4: I think is important to remember. And for me, who tends to project onto things is that we don't see the buildup to that. Like Mike, as you were describing that meeting, like that's the meeting that I wish I saw that's not the meeting they have, but it's likely that was the first meeting they had, and this is the 20th meeting they had. We just don't right. see it, and we don't know. Well, I think and they, it's beca- mentioned,
1: like, they mentioned, like, we've had the calls already. We've had the meetings. Mm-hmm. We've had the talks. Like, this is where we're at at this point.
4: Right, and I think that with the sister, too. Like, this is seven years of her calling, and and I mm-hmm. imagine it is kind of an intrusive thing to want to celebrate someone else's birthday with your birthday. I get that. Mm -hmm. What I think frustrates me, and it's probably just a personal reaction is when I, when my daughter was three and she just was screaming all the time, the, I would have these meetings where the, the teachers, and this is at a daycare and they are fantastic, well-meaning people, but I do not think they had the level of training that maybe a kid like my daughter needed at that time. Mm -hmm. And I just would feel this shame coming from them. Yes. Like, why Why can't you fix your kid is what I kept hearing. And, like, I picked Katie Ann once up, and she was, like, screaming. And, like, I was just dragging her to the car. And I just felt, like, all of these eyes on me. Like, what's wrong with you? Why are you terrible? Why are you mm-hmm. such a bad mom? And I got in the car, and I just turned around, and I screamed. And I was like, stop screaming. And I've done that. A couple of times before and I hate saying mm-hmm. that I have because I hate that I did it well, but I mean I'm also I'm human I was gonna <laughs> yeah. say you're
2: human no. I mean I think that everyone in that situation would have that reaction and I was gonna say that I mean the, the counterpoint to everything I just said about Amelia and her lack of setting boundaries and all this is that she needs the help and she's not getting it from right. anywhere mm-hmm. and you know and, and it's it's really this double-edged sword and it's what makes this such a tragic sort of story in a lot of ways, or it would have been tragic if it didn't have a hopeful ending put on no. it, but the, the situation yeah. itself is really frustrating and i just again i relate to amelia too because i'm like this is exactly how i would react <laughs> if put in these circumstances because i know myself too well at this point and having dealt with my with my own depression and anxiety so mm-hmm. long it's like i know how i get when i get overwhelmed and when i'm at that yeah. breaking point and i'm like oh god this would so fucking be me <laughs> and like no. and right it makes me so afraid to ever even attempt even the thought of being a parent you know so yeah
1: it's The moment to me, like, when I the first time I saw this movie, the moment that really stuck with me more than anything else was Amelia sitting alone on a bench eating an ice cream cone at the mall with Mm -hmm. no one around Mm -hmm. her. And it's just a beautiful moment. And the reason it scared me so much was I started to process, like, all of the things that had to go in to making that quiet moment happen. Mm -hmm. Like, her... Sister had to be able to watch her son that day because, like, the kid was no longer in school. Her boss, who that she hates her and who she hates, had to, like, duck out that day or wasn't in that day. Her coworker, that obviously has a crush on her had to, like, agree to cover her shift at that point. All of these factors had to fall into place just for her to have, like, 20 minutes alone to eat ice cream. Like, before we recorded tonight... I went, I picked up the groceries I ordered online and I was going to like, just get an ice cream and sit in the car. Like Jen, you've talked about your Friday evening <laughs> like haircut <laughs> ritual. I just forgot my wallet. So I'm like, oh, no ice cream for me tonight. Oh,
3: that sucks. But I can
1: do that tomorrow at any time I want because my life is not a hellscape. Um, <laughs> so, you know, yeah. I, and then even though she has this moment how quickly that, like, illusion of tranquility was ripped away. Like, she yep. looks at her phone, it's ten calls from her sister. Mm-hmm. All because, like, the only thing the boy did was he talked about the monster, and it was yep. upsetting. So rather than, like, separate the two of them, you know, like, why don't you go play here and, Sam, you go read this book or do something else, she immediately, like, blows up her sister's phone It's like, I don't want to deal with this kid. I, like, you know, what a shitty. Aunt, yeah, she's. It's clear you know? to me yeah. that
2: was again like the the straw that broke the camel's back of just she wanted to be angry mm. at her sister. She wants to yeah. hurt uh-huh. her sister, and just hearing the way that the little girl talks to Sam when they're alone in the treehouse, like that tells you oh, everything yeah. about what she's saying we'll at home.
3: Definitely talk about that. And, and I mean,
2: yep. to me, that like, yeah, yep. I, I can under on some to some degree, I can understand the sister's frustration and her her lack of skill set for coping with it. Mm. But she's also a fucking asshole, and you know, yep. and, she, and her little. <laughs> shitty brat daughter sucks ass not mm-hmm. to excuse pushing a little girl out of a treehouse but it's like you can just see how yeah. this all came together it's very understandable i
1: i would i would justify her getting pushed out <laughs> that girl deserved it like the aunt could have easily done some imaginative play with the two of them around the monster and normalized yeah. it and made it less scary for the daughter hmm and that that's... kid sucked. That little girl, she she was. The She's worst. awful. Yeah. she was the real monster. <laughs> yes, of <the> movie. yes, <laughs> yes,
4: she is. Well, and that's one of the things that I that strikes me too is that like when they're small and you really just kind of have to excuse a lot of things that they say and a lot of things that they do because they don't know any better and you understand that. And that's one of the hardest things about parenting is like, I want to be asleep right now, but this six month old needs food and there's no way that I'm ever gonna get, like that's not fair because I need this sleep. But these are the sacrifices that you make to have a child and there are just so many sacrifices that she is constantly making and there's never anywhere for her to dump that pressure off. Like the old woman, when she gives her the tea and she's like, oh, I don't want milk in my tea. And she's not like, oh, I'm sorry. I Mm -hmm. asked for tea without milk. Do you mind getting me another one? She just demands this. And that's what having a young child is. It's like constantly having to like submit to these demands without, and I guess that goes into what you were talking about with the boundaries is that like, there's never a way to, like, she doesn't have anyone to talk to about this. Mm -hmm. Like Corey and I can say, I'm really tired. I like this sucks. I I love my kids, but I'm tired. And she doesn't have anybody to say that to Mm -hmm. And it just builds and builds and builds in the resentment and the pressure. And even if she didn't have this tragic life experience that she did, I imagine that would still be really hard yeah what I, what keeps coming to mind is why doesn't someone get her help they clearly see that she needs help and I don't think that's really fair to say and maybe is what I want to talk about next is how she isolates mm-hmm. and how she resists that help And we've already yeah. talked about it a little bit but we see it to an extreme in this movie like she there's really there's one
1: moment away. in the film like after like Sam has like a little seizure Mm -hmm. That she brings him to the doctor, and she's, like, telling her story. And it's, like, different from when she goes to the cops. Like, the cops, like, laugh at her Mm -hmm. when she's, like, they delivered a kid's book, and they just laugh. And then they're, like, looking at her hands, and they're going into cop mode. And again, I think it's a really good example of why police officers who are not trained in mental health issues shouldn't be sent out to deal with. Mental health. My God,
2: should they not? (laughs) Should they be there? Are they, especially given the fact that here in this country, they got guns and they're given way more training on using guns than anything else. Exactly. Right.
1: Exactly. When she goes to that doctor, who he examines her, says, "Oh, this is what it is," and she relays the whole story out, and he's like, "Okay, I can set you up with a psychiatrist. It'll be about three weeks, but let's do it now." And you see Mm -hmm. that first glimmer of hope, Mm -hmm. and then she says. I need something right now. And you see Mm -hmm. it in his face at first. He's kind of like taken aback. Like, why would you want to give your child drugs? And then he listens to her, empathizes with where she's at, and does something that a good clinician does. He understands that like, she is the expert in herself and where she's Mm -hmm. at and her child. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know her better than she knows herself. So he's like, "Okay, this is going to be a mild sedative. This is what you can expect. It'll you can have it for about like a week right now, and this mm-hmm. should help you. He's the first person to give her really any really listen to her. yeah, but that, but what happens, and it's so heartbreaking, like one of the things this movie does so well is the persistence of depression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She has this great night's sleep. She feels relaxed for the first time in days she gets up and she immediately hears like the knock on the door. Like that's the depression saying like, I'm still here.
2: Mm-hmm. You, thought, you, you she, thought you'd have a day off, but no, no, no. no. Yeah. No. Nope. When she nope. ignores
1: it, there's a pounding on the door. Like the depression is going to insist on itself, whether mm-hmm. you want it to or not. And I think that is just such a, really scary thing about this movie Mm
2: -hmm. it's brilliant Mm -hmm. i think it's like such a brilliant Mm -hmm. it's an exactly what we were saying earlier about a lesser movie would just not handle that well at all Mm -hmm. an average viewer you can just watch it as a a big scary ghost monster but when it Mm -hmm. but it holds up to scrutiny so well and in in representing this you know emotional pain and yeah it's i just think it's fantastic
4: Mm mm-hmm yeah, and that's something that I've definitely experienced, and that's and I don't know if we want to skip ahead to the the ending, but that's one of the biggest things that I take away from this movie is that it doesn't go away. And like you think that she's going to get out of the basement and it's fine, and oh yeah, we're happy now, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And you think that they're going to get past this crisis and that it's going to be okay, or that she's going to get help from Miss Roach and that it's going to be okay. And there's like it's terrifying, but there's also hope. In knowing that I can get past this crisis and it'll be okay until it's not okay again. And now I know what to do, you know, and there's, there is hope in that. And I think one of the things that I love about this movie as well is that she is not crying through the whole movie. Like, I think it really kind of the first thing that you talked about, Mike, is like, she's not sad she's depressed and Mm -hmm. like the thing that always really really gets me is when she's sitting in the bathtub with all of her clothes on and then she just picks sam up and it just it breaks my heart and Mm -hmm. just to see her stare and just the glaze that goes over her eyes when she can't sleep it's just it's such an amazing portrayal of what it actually feels like to be in that experience you know and it's terrifying no. Oh, and I also – another thing that I, I appreciated but didn't catch the first time is the tooth pain thing, which is – I found an article that says that, like, your oral health can be really linked to your stress levels, and which is not technically depression, but I imagine – being depressed puts stress on your body and i think that's absolutely
2: teeth grinding is a thing at the beginning the same uh scene where samuel is clinging to her you see they do a shot of him grinding his teeth and that's a really thing that puts sets my teeth on edge if you will Mm -hmm. and i I grind my teeth at night i have a mouth guard that i'm supposed to wear and i never do and i get a lot of uh molar and like jaw pain as a result Uh of it Mm -hmm. which is a you know again really eat so i think that that's just like a nice little thing and it coming full circle to when she pulls the tooth out of her face and it's so gross because mm. i hate tooth mm-hmm. teeth and mouth mm-hmm. stuff and, <laughs> and so i yeah i think that was just a nice little thing to sh- sort of as like a it's like a clock in the movie that shows you how far along the path toward being full babadook she is <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. yeah
4: well should we talk about Do we want to talk about samuel, samuel? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we Samuel. need to talk about Samuel, Samuel yes. yeah. <laughs> I love I love this kid. I think he is so cute. I think it's the accent and this performance is just amazing. I, I just think he's he's so I-, I have so much pity for him. And I wonder if it's partly because I have a son who's six right now and I mm-hmm. feel I feel Amelia's guilt in this movie, so it kind of I, I pull all the shame onto me, mm-hmm. not to him. But like there people shit on this kid all the time. Yeah. Like the meme of why can't you just be normal? And it really bothers me. Well, I like that yeah.
2: meme when people have twisted it to be about like their own inner monologue. Like I find that very like uh-huh. me screaming at myself. Why can't you just be normal? Mm-hmm. And then it's like. like you know, but, every day. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> yes. I find that relatable, but I agree. I, I yeah. always I mean, yes, I see the ways in which this character is annoying and hard to deal with. But I just don't understand the level of backlash toward this child. <laughs> it's so yeah, bizarre to me. I know.
1: I've, I've seen it happen like three times this year. There's been on like Twitter, like, who is the most annoying kid in horror? And this kid is always tagged, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, fuck this kid. I
2: know. It's like, um, what the hell? Like, the
1: posts are like <laughs> I know. super hateful. Um, I mean, it's not like it's like Jake Lloyd in A Phantom Menace. Like, it doesn't deserve that level right. of
2: betrayal. We can all <laughs> hate kidding. that kid who not. then develops serious yeah. mental health problems he does from not the, deserve the any backlash hate. he got. Like, <laughs> not.
1: Um, and this is a problem. Like, I tend, to, I can be snarky in my humor. Oh, maybe, I mean, me too. I mean, yeah. a little bit, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> this kid is, is, is annoying sometimes. Um, I love this kid because, like, number one, he can build a catapult and a crossbow.
2: I can't do you know? that. And he's pretty good at magic <laughs> like, tricks. I mean, you know, right. being a magician I is know. one of the more irritating mm-hmm. hobbies you can have, just having known I mean... some magicians <laughs> in my life. But yeah. but in a child, it's precocious and cute. <laughs> yeah.
1: He's going to grow up to be Joe Blitz. I know. um,
2: Also, there's
4: a fucking bird under that pan. Like, that's a legit trick. Yeah, where did he get a bird? I know. (laughs) That's the Babadook working for you.
1: (laughs) He's able. Like, he does that sleight of hand to not take the pill. So I kind of like how the magic is worked into... Mm the movie so it was how he palms he palms it he does the misdirection and like yeah
2: i
4: have never noticed that before i was just so caught up in my feelings watching it last night it's
1: really good i love Um, this movie (laughs) but when people like really bag on this kid it shows like a real contempt for kids that are on the spectrum yeah because this is definitely well again I, i this is most likely a child that is somewhere on the spectrum uh and has a real struggle with like processing emotions and expressing himself appropriately Mm -hmm. at best. He's like severely ADHD with a emphasis on hyperactivity, which often can look like autism. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think Mm -hmm. most people would, you know, looking at him, like would say like he is somewhere on the spectrum with some processing issues when it comes to like expressing emotions and also like self regulation. So to really hate on this kid is to really like shit on people that are like neurodivergent. And Mm -hmm. fuck that, like, please don't do that. Yeah, I think
2: it so misses the point of why he's like this and and what it indicates in the dynamic of this plot and this relationship between mother and son. I just think it's, again, Mm -hmm. it's so reductive and rude and it's like, what's Mm -hmm. wrong with people? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Right. What hit me this time too, think about, how many times in the movie that like just to strangers he's like my dad died driving my mom to the hospital to give birth uh-huh, to me I know. and he tells it in such a matter-of-fact way like think of how many times his mother has told him that story mm-hmm. to the point where like he processes it in such a way that it's so matter-of-fact and drilled to him And what that would, like, say about him. Yes. Like, that is Like, a core
2: feature of your identity at age six is that you're... Is that you killed your dad. You know? I mean, it's Mm -hmm. heartbreaking. I think the moment when they're in the store and a woman asks and he Mm -hmm. says that for the first time in the movie, like, the look on her face of just going, like, oh, no. You know, I think that Mm -hmm. says everything. I I find it... It hit me way harder this time how heartbreaking that is. Mm -hmm. Well, and I read that as
4: she... Because if you see her talk to Mrs. Roach, like she does not want him to say that she doesn't want to hear that from him. And I read it as he is dying to talk to somebody about this. Like he needs to process this and he doesn't Mm -hmm. have anyone to talk to. And, um, I am going to link an article that is about attachment theory, which Mm -hmm. in relation to, uh, Samuel and, um, Amelia. And it's kind of what we were talking about with like the withdrawer and the pursuer. And I know there's, um, The way I've had that frame to me is in attachment in a relationship and just how like the Amelia's depression when Samuel was very young, probably fed into a lot of this. And he's just internalized this Mm -hmm. identity of himself. And my therapist the other day said this thing. She said, our first trauma is birth because it's not pleasant to be born and I just can't stop thinking about that and then it kind of morphed into during one of my brain spotting sessions into like my dad not really wanting to be around me when I was crying because that was really Mm -hmm. stressful for him and just like that I probably internalized that without having any way of processing it because I was Mm -hmm. an infant you know and I I just imagine the life that Samuel has led leading up to this dealing with his mother's depression that is not being treated and just it it breaks my heart for him but I love him so much because he's he's like the hero he's the one that saves her and the moment and I'm going to try not to cry when I say this but like he looks at her and he puts his hand on her face and he just says, I know you love me, but you can't love me right now. And the Babadook uh-huh. won't let you love me. And that just breaks my heart Yeah, because there's so many times that I think like I look at my kids and I think I, I really want to be the best mom that I can. But I just can't do it right now because it hurts too much. And it's not even that that hurts. It's that everything else hurts. And I just don't have anything more to give. And just went that scene where he just touches her face. It that's when like the the big sobs come and <laughs> and they feel really good but it just and that's why i think it really hurts me a lot of times when people shit on him I'm like yes yeah. but he's been through all of this and he still is able to keep looking at his mother mm-hmm. and keep seeing her and it just I, I,
2: mm. I think that line is is this movie you know it, it yeah. is exactly like the you know i i know you don't love me because you can't and yeah. i'm going to get you through that over that threshold so that you we we can love each other you know and yeah. that is the core of this film and it's it's it is it's absolutely heartbreaking and but it like it speaks to like a child's way of framing that in his mind is by making it become an actual physical monster because that's so much easier yeah. to process than all of the subtle, complex, emotional shit that we're talking about because he's a child, Mm -hmm. you know, and I I think it's, again, it's brilliant. Like, it works from any angle you look at it, from an emotional analysis or a literal analysis. Like, it's great.
4: Yeah. I yelled at my daughter one time, and she looked at me, and she said, I want my mommy. And I was like, but I'm your mommy. (laughs) Who who are you seeing right now? And that just, it just broke my heart. So, Mm -hmm. oof.
1: His cousin is so shitty I know, to him too. I know.
2: Oh my god!
4: It is yes. the I wanted worst. Wanted to
1: smack
2: that child even after she fell yeah. out of the treehouse. <laughs> <laughs> like
1: it really, it really exposes like some of the cruelty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That children are capable oh, yeah. of. Like it's horrific. I mean, I mm-hmm. not to
2: bring this to my own childhood, but like, yeah. I mean, kids. I remember kids saying shit like that to, you know. I would get bullied. There was one kid in my class who like you know, didn't, only had one parent, and people would say shit like that to them, you know, and, it, and I just remember even then being like, what the hell are you saying? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, it's horrible. Uh, it, kids, mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing. I, I think that kids are kind of, in a lot of ways, like tiny sociopaths before their brains are done developing completely, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. They they, mm-hmm. they lack the uh, uh, regulatory nature of the pre- prefrontal cortex, you know, <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah.
4: What I was thinking when I watched that was like, yeah, you know, Samuel says that to himself, I'm sure, in some form. Mm -hmm. And now you've given him words to put to that feeling that he that those words are probably going to stay in his head for the rest of his life. Yep. And I mean, hopefully he learns how to deal with those. But like and that's the rumination that we were talking about earlier like that. You've just given him. Feud for that, yeah. Mm-hmm. I have heard that the most dangerous humans on the planet are two-year-olds. They just lack the power to do anything about it.
2: Yeah, God forbid so. one of their brains got transplanted into, like, the rock's <laughs> body or something. Yeah.
4: Well, let's let's talk about the Babadook. And I kind of just listed a bunch of topics that, that came out while I was watching this. But, like, I... For one, the Babadook is so scary. Like, I saw images of him... And that was feeding into my wanting to turn the movie off before <laughs> I had even seen him because I saw his like image on the, the DVD top box or whatever. He's so fucking scary. It's like the movements and that's kind of the style we were talking about. It's like the blackness is so inky and it's it's not even black. It's like the absence of light, which I think makes like this really interesting point about just getting sucked into this darkness rather than just a character that is dark, you know? And it it's so fucking creepy.
2: Yeah, it's one of the more iconic horror monster characters coming out of the last ten years in terms of like towing that mm-hmm. line. La- you know it's, it reminds me a lot of like I think you point this out in your notes as well, Mike. Um, German expressionism. There's a bit of J horror like kind of thrown in there. There's mm-hmm. a lot going on in that in the way that that character is depicted. Um, yeah. I just think mm-hmm. I did want to say that I think to me at least it's pretty clear whether literally or figuratively you know however you want to look at this plot whether it's psychosis or supernatural the babadook is amelia or an aspect of her it's her unresolved mm-hmm. grief it's her anger it's her sadness it's her depression made into a physical creature and th- yeah. this is how I, I, mean, and this is getting into my own, I think why it works so well for depression is it's, he's like a parasite or an invader from within, um, which is exactly what depression feels like to me. And what, and I think the imagery of the Babadook with those long claws was really powerful to me. I used to visualize my depression as it's a little funnier because I always had to put a comedic twist on it to some degree. It was this furry mm-hmm. little critter who lived inside my chest and was constantly like puking inside of me. And the puking was this mm-hmm. like darkness that would fill me. And he had long claws that were thrust so deeply into my heart that the like flesh had grown around the claws. And like into, and so we kind of became one. And that there was mm-hmm. no separating it from me without killing the host. And so the imagery of the Babadook always really resonated with me on some kind of subconscious level because of those those long, creepy fingers.
3: Mm-hmm. And I don't know.
2: It was just something I was thinking about while thinking about depression and this movie. I used to envision an apple as my heart and it
4: would just have mold, like constantly c- creeping back and growing over it. And I would have to take like a spray hose and like spray all of the mold off. But then it kept growing back and back, you know, mm-hmm. and I'd never put that together The until you said that. So mm-hmm. thank you for that. Of course. Um, but it- I also think. I almost put her husband on the list of things I wanted to talk about, but I think like like they're almost one and the same. It's just different uh-huh. manifestations. and that's the thing that I really I really stuck on the first time that I watched this is her husband and the the visions that she has of him and saying, bring me the boy like you, we can be together. Just bring me the boy. And it's just that persuasive element of depression. Like it just it feels so good to just stay in bed when it's so hard to get out of bed and just and the way at the end where he says, just keep breathing which at first you take as this kind of powerful message of hope, and then it flips into the trigger or the, the flashback of the accident. And I just think it's brilliant mm-hmm. the way that it is portrayed here. Because mm-hmm.
2: there is, like, you want—it's so easy to just give into it, you know? It, it's almost like because she put all of her husband's things in the basement, right? So, like, she's yeah. she hasn't really processed the trauma and the grief of this loss. And because it did happen so traumatically— this moment that she has where she find, he, he keeps popping up as a manifestation of her subconscious because she hasn't processed the loss. And, and, yeah. and, and that is what has contributed to it becoming this sort of, this malaise that she lives in. Uh, and, and so when she, the final boss battle is with the flashback itself and with his head being cleaved in half, you know, because of, that's what she, the last thing she saw of him before, you know, the car went upside down, uh, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like that, I mean, I just as like the final battle of her. But then, you know, it's it's never really over because she just has to she puts part just a much smaller and more manageable part of it in the back in the basement. But it had to come out Mm -hmm. of the basement before she could process it.
1: Right. Yeah. And by keeping all of her husband's memories and things in the basement and by barring Sam from Mm -hmm. the basement, she's not allowing her son to ever know his own father mm-hmm. like she's keeping that away from him as a punishment and there's even a point where he says like he was my he dad won't let yeah. me have a dad you know? and like mm-hmm. yes mm. i do like how i mentioned the ice cream thing earlier i like how her like potential love interest like robbie shows up at the house with like flowers and a toy it's this big romantic gesture Takes one look at the situation and pieces up. Yeah, rest of the he doesn't. Movie. Yes, I like I how we love like,
2: that he doesn't come back, and we don't really see how <laughs> right, it totally he, plays out. But it's just so suggested. It's such a good like yes. again the way this movie is edited. They know exactly how to give you just enough information and then like cut the mm-hmm. scene so there's no exposition. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, there's,
1: there is a deleted scene somewhere, probably of Robbie at the local pub <laughs> going. <laughs> Let me tell you man I dodged a bullet. <laughs> right. there. I knew she so... had a
2: kid and was a single mom but I didn't know it was <laughs> like that. <laughs>
1: right. right. Uh, I do like that little bit of information that he never returns to the movie <laughs> Right.
4: Again. Well, and I think a lesser movie would come in and have him save the day and she moves away from the memory of her husband mm-hmm. by going to another man. And I love that mm-hmm. that's not the resolution mm-hmm. for her because mm-hmm. what she's she has to really confront this and that's the turning point I see for her is when she looks mm-hmm. at him and she says, stop, and then at the end where she tells the story and she's the one that says, my husband... Husband died on the way to the hospital, and she's saying it just like Sam Mm -hmm. did. But it's the first time we see her really acknowledge it, and he doesn't Mm -hmm. need to be part of that. Like that guy from the hospital, he's irrelevant. That's that's exactly because it's not about her finding someone else; it's about her healing herself and finding out how to be with Samuel. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and I do like how the way the Baba Duke is designed, like it's comprised of her husband's clothing, yeah, and. You know, it's in, as well as, like, the magician's outfit from the DVD that Sam is obsessed Mm -hmm. with, like, these things, like, these two triggers, like, her husband's death and looking at her son as being the cause of it, like, this amalgamation of it has caused this, like, really... Bizarre looking creature to manifest itself. I really like
2: that. I do too. And just to hark back to just, we were talking about Black Friday and we were talking about the attic and the basement being these sort of liminal spaces where the bad things happen. And here the Mm -hmm. basement is her subconscious. I mean, it's like, it's a, fairly on the nose analogy that I think we see in horror movies like things happening in the basement or attics and stuff but it really does work here as a manifestation of the subconscious so I I like it.
4: (laughs) Yeah because there's a denial element and you see that with Mrs. Roach too like she does not want to talk about Mrs. Roach or she doesn't want to talk to Mrs. Roach because she knows Mrs. Roach is going to want to talk to her about Oscar who was her husband and she just doesn't want to do that because it's easier just to pull the shades down and just go through the motions and I think what we see is Is that she has been going through the motions for seven years and it's just she doesn't have any more there because she hasn't acknowledged it. And that's why like she needs to look at that and she needs to say it out loud. And Mrs. Roach is a compassionate way to do that, which is the support that she really needs. And she has to find a way to accept that support, Mm -hmm. which is what Samuel gives her. Because even looking at Samuel, too, like that's a that's a reminder of her husband. I'm sure he does things that remind her of Oscar and that it's just a constant reminder. And so there's a, I could imagine wanting to distance from Samuel, but I think we see at the end and maybe we're kind of skipping a little bit to the end. But I want to say one more thing about the basement because it just, like Samuel is willing to go down into that deep, dark space with her and sit with her in that. And there have been times where I've just been in those spaces and it's just like it feels so lonely and like nobody is ever going to want to know about this or nobody is ever going to be able to handle that with oh. me and it just
2: yeah that's <laughs> what
4: leads to that isolation yeah you know?
2: I find that very relatable it's like that's what love is is being willing to go to the basement with someone and like say like exactly I know you're not ready right now but I'm here for you and I'm going to help you get through this like mm-hmm. I mean it, I'll start getting emotional now because it's like <laughs> as such a someone who's struggled with so much with depression it is it isolates you it does. Yeah, you know, it's it's very hard to find anyone that's willing to to live with that.
4: Yeah, and it's like the the reality of that. If you, you if you don't handle me at my craziness or my <laughs> like. Like looking all gross, you can't.
2: If you don't, if you can't handle me at my Baba Duke, you can't. Ha- you don't deserve me at my Baba best. About <laughs> no, no. ba- that, exactly. Oh, yes. Boy. Thank you for.
4: That's why memes
2: work better. <laughs> just, just to describe this thing. I want. Yeah, yeah. Please. I deserve death after saying that. So you know. Oh no no no! no. I loved it. It was
4: way better than my. Oh. Uh, 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 uh. Remember that thing from Get Out?
1: So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh. So the Baba, the Baba book. book.
4: Ah, yes. The Baba Book book book. Baba yeah. Book book Which, oh, dude.
2: Yes. Amazing. Yeah, it's, it's a great piece of art that is, again, iconic. Like that, mm. you know, I, mm. I, I like what you have to say here about German expressionism, Mike, if you want to talk about that just from an, an aesthetic mm. level.
1: I think I put that in the wrong point. I think that was supposed to go under the creature. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, well, okay. the creature exists but in what, the book, too. Yeah, I, yeah.
2: I, I do think they're all kind of tied together, the aesthetic of it.
1: The thing about this book is it's really the only splash of color in the movie. When you look at her home, like, the curtains are drawn in her home pretty much at all times. So what you have, like, you really never get a sense of time of day in this movie because you have these huge swaths of her home that are pitch black and covered in shadow. And the only light that you do get are these, like, really dark walnut woods and these really deep navy blues. So, the only thing that has any real vibrant, and Amelia herself, like her uniform is either beige or light mm-hmm. gray. She has this really pale blonde hair and this really like bone white complexion. So, the only splash of any like vibrant color at all in this movie is this red, thick children's book that like sits like a sore thumb. So, this book really allows Amelia to define depression is this overwhelming force that she can't escape from Um, and it's with her with all times like there's this little rhyme in the book like I'll wager with you I'll make you a bet the more you deny the stronger I get you start to change when I get in the Babadook growing right under your skin and we'll talk about narrative therapy when we do our like uplifting moment I'm just gonna spend like two minutes Mm -hmm. on it but it's this like simple children's rhyme that really describes the absolutely crushing way depression takes a hold of a person. Like that lack of energy, the inability to sleep, the feeling that all of the joy in the world has been sucked out of it. And you see that in her home. Like there's no color in her mm-hmm. home. It's so. We talked about and we need to talk about Kevin. How like you have this McMansion and all of this empty space. Mm-hmm. Here it is like this beautiful lived in home mm-hmm. that just feels so like all of the life has been sucked out of it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um in the book, this monster is like looming over this paralyzed woman that's like this hugely like, hovers over her. It's another like like Laura, you just described it, Jen, you just described it like how that depression like lives inside of you mm-hmm. and can, never lets go,
4: mm-hmm. yeah and it's like a warning because they say in the book that or in the movie that she like used to write children's books and she has that ink on her hands yes. mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i think this is the first time i'm really thinking about it as like part of her is saying hey it's getting really bad this is what's going to happen if if it's it's like part of her is crying out for help and this is just the way that it manifests even though mm-hmm. it terrifies her to say that and to see it but like this is going to escalate and it is going to lead to you killing Samuel and then yourself mm-hmm. if we don't mm-hmm. do something about it. And the book is what starts that, starts the cycle of it.
2: Right. And it's kinda of, you think about those stories you hear about like family annihilators and people who yeah. you know, mm-hmm. or like uh Chris Benoit is like a famous example of that. And like, you know, it's just yeah. kind of in this case, I mean obviously it's taken to that extent because we're in the horror genre. But I do think yeah. it's like yeah, th- this is the narrative she's telling herself, whether or not she acknowledges that, that it's coming from, the, the call is coming from inside the house, you know. Um, it, mm. and, and I think that, the again, the book is just a brilliant way to do that. And actually, before this viewing, I had never picked up the line where they said she was a children's author before. I always mm-hmm. thought, oh, she was probably writing the book. But I, that, to me, like, crystallized it. And I was like, oh, they really meant that. It's really all coming from mm-hmm. her.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just so good. It's
2: great. And I I, I love the art. It also really, it just makes me think of Edward Gorey and the Gashley Crumb Tinies. I don't know if you're Mm. a fan, but like that that aesthetic, I'm always a huge fan of. So, yeah.
4: Well, let's talk about the end because I have just so many thoughts about it. And that is my favorite Part and I've t- already talked about that a little bit, but I love that this doesn't go away. And it's like Mike, we were talking about the measure of pain because what we mm-hmm. see in the end is the Babadook is living in the basement. And she checks in every day and he asks, how was it today? And she says, oh, not so bad, you know, and that's what she's doing. She's checking Mm -hmm. in. She's doing a feelings check. She's going down into the basement Mm -hmm. and she's allowing herself to be sad because like the basement is like the heart of this pain for her because that's where all of her husband's stuff is. And she's and so I see that as her like going in and saying, "Okay, I'm going to be sad for a couple of minutes and I'm going to spend some time with these memories that are too painful for me to carry all day long. But I'm going to acknowledge that they're there. And she even says to Samuel, one day when you're older, you can come down here with me like I I will start to talk about this with you or share it with you at some point can't right mm-hmm. now it's and i've experienced that too like sometimes Corey will ask me if i want to talk about anything and like it's just i just can't share it with anybody right now it's just mm-hmm. too it's too much and it's just so fucking i love the acknowledgement of that because it's exactly the way i've experienced trying to overcome this you know
2: 100 percent agree with everything you just said i think it's a no. th- brilliant coming together of this extended metaphor like it's a a perfect ending and it 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 resonated it resonates a little more with me every time i watch the movie which Mm -hmm. hopefully means i'm Mm -hmm. growing as a person i don't know Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) i you know i really like this ending more than your typical horror movie ending where like the villain is defeated and everyone goes about their way and then you have like the jump scare at the end to set up the sequel Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. i have argued this before that I would say that the last 30 seconds of every horror movie don't actually exist in canon. Yes. (laughs) that they're just so, you know, I really like, that's how I kind of reconcile that. What I find, like, so much more powerful here is this message from Kent that the depression hasn't gone away, but it's now manageable. Like, Mm -hmm. she has the coping skills to kind of deal with it. More importantly, like, she can acknowledge that it's there, and she can tend to, like you said, she can tend to it, And then she can go and she can refocus her time and energy on the things that she would really rather do.
3: Mm -hmm. Like spend
1: that time with Samuel, spend that time with her neighbor, and not have this like really hopeless outlook. So the monster never truly goes away. Like depression doesn't really ever go away, but, Mm -hmm. you know, it can be managed. Like you can, and we'll talk a little bit about this in a little bit, like readjust your thinking around it in ways that can be like really powerful and Mm -hmm. really helpful.
4: We've talked about this, I think, in episodes, but like I kind of got to a break or a realization where I was talking to my therapist and I'm like, yeah, this isn't going, this isn't going away. It's not that I'm going to like flip some switch or finally achieve this level of therapy where I'm happy all the time. Like that's, that's not the goal of therapy. The goal is to acknowledge the times that you're not. And deal with them and then move on and enjoy the times that you're happy. And that's what we see her do at the end. And it's so like we don't see that that often, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's why people have this this like delusion of therapy is it just solves your problems, you know, and that's not what it's about.
2: And going into it with that attitude sort of it sets you up for failure because you'll never achieve that ideal. So right.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Like I I've talked to Corey about like kind of our journey through therapy together and like it's not to get us back to where we were. It's to get us to a better place, a place that is different that because we're we're just better now we're better together and we're more honest with each other and that's the goal and that's where they get and you see them these sweet scenes at the end where they they both are really enjoying each other's company they're sitting and they're having an honest conversation mm-hmm. with the people mm-hmm. and it just like the when the social workers are there and they're saying these really hard things and they're all just having a conversation it is night and day from the first visit that mm-hmm. the, the social workers come
2: that, that it just that's the growth that sense know? of fear and impending doom is gone and it's just like oh yeah well, we'll just deal with these things yep yep. i
1: do like in that first visit that one of the social workers like acknowledges, like you know like we've shown up on your door unannounced and we've kind of caught you at a bad moment mm-hmm. he's like this is my card we'll come back in a week and, like, we'll discuss our options then. Mm-hmm. And he's really kind to her in that moment. And the other one's a bit, you know.
2: More judgy. I think a bit
1: horrified <laughs> as to what's going on. Because, yeah. like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, part of it, I love Sam. Like, the delivery of that line. Like, <laughs> I'm really tired because of all the drugs. <laughs> you know? <laughs> know. Um, and he's like, I'm like, going to vomit.
2: Oh and, like, he, he's. Right. People yeah. don't give that kid enough credit for delivering an outstanding comedic mm-hmm. performance, huh. an outstanding oh. dramatic performance. He goes through the whole. I know. Damn it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like what you know. One of the things I really like about his or the way he's framed in this movie is he doesn't start off as really irritating, but as the movie progresses and as Amelia's mental state declines, Sam gets more grating. As the movie, I find (laughs) myself like being less tolerant. And I, I'll defend Sam. I love Sam. I think like, fuck, man. I you know. Put him and Kevin McAllister in a little like
2: yeah. home
1: trap. <laughs> they have their own home trap business. Yes, at yes. End, like uh-huh. I did. I did security. think of Home
2: Alone when he d- is doing um, a little. <laughs>
1: but like as Amelia's irritation grows, I found like Sam growing more irritating as well. There's a steady descent of like how accepting I am of his behavior, and I think that's like a really purposeful choice yeah. on the part of the director
2: and it's i was thinking about it i think because i like to think about things from an editing perspective too in the way that like mm-hmm. they they do a ton in the sound design of this movie i probably had the volume yeah. up a little too high while i was watching this but i was like mm-hmm. enjoying i sometimes really like to hear you know uh, all the detail and like the way that they that the cuts get shorter as those those sequences mm-hmm. go on you know they they and they they do these things called like L cuts where the sound from one scene will go into the next shot and you're Mm -hmm. his screaming. They they keep ramping up how much he's screaming and how it goes from one scene to another. And, and it's like, Mm -hmm. as we descend into her madness, they're doing a lot with the editing and the pacing and the sound design to like irritate you more and make you feel more overwhelmed mm-hmm. and I, I was noticing like oh the sound design of this movie is making me feel really overwhelmed and mm-hmm. you know and I think mm-hmm. that that's what at, you know it just you're putting you in her shoes and again great yeah. fucking filmmaking you've got to really appreciate yeah. that well it's interesting that you
4: say that because I think I have the opposite experience of Sam is that he is so grating at the beginning and then slowly I just it, mm-hmm. that wears down and I think that mostly is probably because the shame element is activated with me that Mm -hmm. guilt and shame of connecting with Amelia so much and being so judgmental of her behavior because I feel like it's mine you know and and so I extend so much more empathy to Sam because I just imagine because I want to like I guess that's maybe me trying to go back in time and give myself empathy in those moments or kind of be nicer to my kids but I don't know it's just again great filmmaking because it's the exact same thing and we're having different responses to it based on our experiences that are both really meaningful you know (sighs) well so we've talked a lot about depression in this movie, and I think it's a fantastic representation, but um, are there any other mental health issues or topics we see represented here? I know we're running a little long, so we're not going to go into detail about them, but we just like to mention them when we see them. Mm -hmm. Um, And, Laura, I know that you had already mentioned the boundaries that we talked about a little earlier, and then you have something really fascinating written in your notes, and I want to hear about it.
2: Yeah, it's just I was just listening to an episode of last podcast on the left where they talked about this condition in relation to a specific case um, that happened in England. So it's called, I, again, this is a French term and I'm going to butcher it. So I think it's <laughs> folie deux, shared psychosis or madness of two. Um, it's basically uh, it's kind of, there's, if you think of cases of like mass hysteria, imagine that, but with like two people and you often see this in families and, um, and it, it's a very bizarre thi- a thing that happens, and there are documented cases of, and I just find it really fascinating. Um, it's definitely something that I don't think has ever, it's not like an, a nut that's been fully cracked. So I just say go- mm-hmm. Google away, um, listen to the last podcast episode, it was just a few episodes ago, it's um, the Ur- Ursula and Sab- Sabine Eriksson, these two Swedish twins who mm-hmm. like went and mm. killed people and then like threw themselves into traffic. And like, they had this shared delusion of being persecuted by people that were going to like assault them. Um And I think that there's an argument that this is what's happening between Amelia and Samuel in this movie, that it's all mm. a shared a sort of shared delusion of this Babadook creature because mm-hmm. they aren't able to process what's happening to them emotionally. So um just something mm. that sort of synced up with my viewing of this movie this time around. So, That's fascinating. I would love to learn more about that condition. I'm very intrigued by it. (laughs)
4: Um, Well, and the other thing that I wanted to mention, and it is a complete kind of 180 from what we've been talking about, but the Babadook is a queer icon. And I don't know a ton about that. I've linked an article that kind of explains it a little bit. And it's one of
2: those things where I don't, like, I'm certainly not the person to explain it. It's deep, Um, deep internet meme culture created this. And I think it's, yeah, I I don't, I'm not, it's been too long since I did read. I went down a rabbit (laughs) hole with it while it was trending. And then now I've forgotten all of it. So, (laughs) yeah.
4: But I just wanted to mention that. And I, because I think it's, it's really interesting. And I think if you go down that rabbit hole, there's a lot to kind of unpack with with meme culture and with representation and yeah, it's, it's just really interesting, but I just didn't want to go by without mentioning that. Um, (laughs) Awesome. Is there anything else we want to mention mental health topics? All right. Well, so as we're starting to wrap up, uh, what are some of the other movies we see depression represented in? And Mike already said, mentioned the next movie we're going to do is Lake Mungo. So we're not going to talk about that here, but um I put Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to you, which I always want to say is Happy Death Day to you <laughs> um, but. And I it always I'm not going to go into too much detail about it, but it like that's such a light and fun movie and people post memes from it all the time. But there's a suicide montage in that movie, and that is a representation of living the same day over and over again and uh, emotional response to it. And it always has just rung a lot darker to me than I think a lot of people experience that movie. And that's probably me specific, but I, I just wanted to mention that one. Um, do we have any others that we want to mention?
2: Just a quick shout out to Hereditary for the sad, struggling <laughs> mom angle. I see a lot of commonality between Tony Collette in that movie and um, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Amelia in in this film. And yep, just in terms of depression, one of my favorite movies from uh, 2001 is a movie called Pulse. It was there was a terrible American oh. remake. Do not watch it. Watch the Japanese version from. <laughs> 2001 um, just for depression in general that was I think a really prescient movie in terms of technology and how it can isolate us and it also explores it's sort of like this idea of contagious suicide Um, and Mm. it is it's a very haunting slow burn movie but I highly recommend it and it's not a movie I just want to give a little shout out to a great book that helped me process a lot of my issues with depression. Um, It's kind of a hard read, but it's called The Noonday Demon, An Atlas of Depression by Andrew Solomon. Um, It's an excellent collection of writing and interviews about depression, and Andrew Solomon is just a wonderful author. His prose is gorgeous. Uh, I could definitely do with a revisit, and I think that they just released a new edition with some updates in, I think it was 2015, because the book is actually from 2001. Highly recommend. Um, and we also mentioned
4: the hilarious world of depression podcast, which I think is a really fascinating. Um, look at, it. and I got a lot of kind of strength and empowerment from it. I don't know if it's continued, but I know there should be a lot of the back episodes um, about that. It's really great. Uh, Mike, does there anything you wanted to mention?
1: No, I think you hit all of them. Like, I think like there's a really fascinating exploration that can be done of like Tony Collette's character in Hereditary and amelia and the babadook because like i don't have a lot of empathy for tony collette's character and i find that movie a hard watch i have a ton of empathy (laughs) Um, for her in that
2: movie but yeah. yeah
1: i find it like this i have a ton of empathy for amelia and i it's hard to put my finger on it i don't know it's really i don't know i'm really I'm looking forward to getting to Hereditary one day when we do, like, Schizophrenia. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah,
2: I think Mm -hmm. it's a good match for that and because I think that's what is the central theme there, so...
4: Uh-huh. Well, one of the first blogs that I ever wrote was about Hereditary and the Babadook and just talking about motherhood and the ways that it's represented there. And it has been taken down, but I am working on a way to get it back out there. So uh-huh. hopefully soon it will be available because I, I it's, it's an early blog, so I kind of read it and I'm like, ah! just as you know whenever you read some early mm-hmm. stuff but I was proud of it and it was a way of me processing a lot of really complicated feelings that I have when I watch both of those movies so I'll work on getting that back up so now it's time for an uplifting moment and I could use it <laughs> <So>. <laughs> So we've talked about some really heavy things in this episode. I'm really glad that we have and I'm grateful for the conversation that we've had Um, because I tend to get emotional when I talk and think about the story. But let's wrap up by talking about uh, grounding or self-care that has been particularly effective for us or maybe some new stuff that we might be trying. And I want to remind everyone I kind of backed off from the spiel for a while, but since it's a new year, I'm going to go into it a little bit. I want to remind everyone, there's no right way to do self-care. It doesn't need to be a trip to the spa or an hour of meditation. Anything that makes you feel good or makes you feel better is self-care. And the coping or grounding techniques that we're talking about are the little tips, tricks, and mantras or practices that help us when we're feeling bad or when we're feeling overwhelmed. Um, Does anyone have anything they want to share?
2: I just take, a bunch of dirt out of my backyard and I go into the crawl space underneath my apartment and I just <laughs> shove it down the throat of my fucking mm-hmm. demons and I go fucking take it take it you little nice. bitch sorry um <laughs> I am going to let Mike talk about narrative therapy because that is far more constructive <laughs> Mike take so, the floor
1: <laughs> So um this is less like a grounding or an uplifting moment but just like a form of therapy that I find Really fascinating and one that I'm I kind of want to dive more into. I tr- borrow some elements of it in my own counseling when I work with people, but I'm by no means like a narrative therapist yet. It's like where I would love to get to. The idea behind it, it was developed by a pair of psychologists. Um, I want to say that it's Michael White and David Epstein kind of like worked on this this modality together, and it basically the mantra of it is the problem is the problem. Um, The person isn't the problem. The problem itself is the problem. So we see oftentimes a person with a mental illness, they kind of define themselves through their diagnosis. So they're like, I am a depressed person. I have bipolar. You know, like I have this eating disorder. Um, Narrative therapy is kind of a way to externalize that problem and put space between it and you. And I think you really see that in this movie where the Baba is this externalization of her depression and her grief. And the same thing with like that book is like a really good tool that one could use to kind of like, to basically externalize that grief. So the idea is to like remove the problem from your core self and re-examine it from a different angle. And it's a way to kind of like shift and change the core beliefs that you have about yourself here. So there's a few things that kind of go into it in terms of it's really going to be a lot in large part about how the client and the counselor react to one another. So three things the um, counselor can do to kind of set this up is number one is a as a therapist, you 100 percent like get show respect to your client when they're sharing your story with you and you respect their autonomy in terms of how they're going to lay their story out second like you do not blame the person in a session so you know as they're laying out their story there's none of like well why didn't you do this and like man you really screwed the pooch on that one it's really about the problem itself has nothing to do with the person like the problem is a thing in and of itself. At that point, finally, and I mentioned this earlier when I talked about the doctor that sat with Amelia, the counselor accepts that the client is going to be the expert on themselves. And that's something that comes out of Carl Rogers um, theory of a universal positive regard is that like, look, the client is the expert, like we're never going to know them better than themselves. I am 45 minutes of a person's week once a week, if I'm even that. And there are a lot more minutes to a week than 45 minutes. Even if I did like handcuff myself to them and spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week with a person, I'm still never going to be able to fully get in their head and know everything they're feeling or experiencing. So it's my job to respect them and to understand that they are the true expert in themselves and I'm there as a guide, not an advice columnist. What's really Fascinating to me about narrative therapy is it does have roots in cognitive therapy because it's really about changing your mindset. Um, But what it is, is you are the author of your own story. Narrative therapy gives a client the opportunity to tell and explore their story, or we call that developing their narrative at that point. And what you're trying to do is you're looking for patterns in your story like, do I react to similar situations the same way every time? Mm -hmm. Do I fall victim to these thoughts that occur all the time? Like if such and such a situation comes up, these are the thoughts or the feelings that I most often or repeatedly experience when it comes to that. By externalizing the problem, by saying that it's really not a part of you, that it's a separate thing in and of itself, you kind of have an opportunity to look at it from a fresh new perspective. One that's hopefully gonna be like much less judgmental and a lot less self-defeating. And then also, you're deconstructing your story at that point. And basically, what you're doing at that point, um, I like to use a phrase like, how do you eat an elephant? Like, <laughs> one bite at a time. You can look at this, your complete history. And if you're like, let's tackle that all today, this week. You're like, <laughs>
3: fuck no.
1: That's a hard thing to do. But you by dis- deconstructing the problem, you are examining the bits you are ready to dive into in like tackling it in much smaller chunks at that point. Finally, like the last thing is like, you can kind of look at your life as like a really cool choose your own adventure book. Mm. Um, just because the, you've had one outcome in the past over and over again, it doesn't mean that your whole life has to be that outcome every time something comes up and you have you know, through this kind of therapy, you can look at and explore all the different outcomes and possibilities that can stem from a situation. So it can be really effective, especially with depression, um, and especially with some trauma as well. So I find this kind of therapy like really beautiful and meaningful. I know that like, I find it helpful when I do it for myself. And when it comes to like, having more than one outcome like i will often like let's say my wife says something to me that i don't like like i have a thing about her not knowing my schedule because my schedule is the same all the Mm -hmm. time and she'll be like so when are you working at the counseling center this week and my gut is to be like same day i've worked there like for three years now um hasn't really changed but i know that like she just has a really hard time remembering it so i'm like okay If I answer it this way, this will happen. If I do this, this will happen. If I write it down and put it on the fridge, this will happen. So I'm, like, doing all these outcomes in my head in five seconds and trying to find the one that's, like, not going to cause us to get angry Mm -hmm. at one another because I'm being a little (laughs) at, you know, trying to manage that irritability. Although, in my defense, it really does suck that, like, (laughs) after, you know, I'm kind of, like... You gotta you know? love
2: being in a long-term relationship, and and you gotta oh. love it. You gotta <laughs> love you? it. Do you? You 16 gotta years. love it. Okay, I'll stop. I'll mm-hmm. stop.
4: <laughs> That's something that I've talked about with my therapist sometimes too. Is like when Corey says something to me, the story I tell myself is that he hates me and I'm terrible, and it's gonna be a fight. And when I say so like just it's like reframing that narrative. I've never like put it in those terms before and I don't know if that's I wonder if my therapist would say she's doing that but that we do talk a lot about the story I tell myself and a lot of my growth has come from being able to put words to feelings and saying this is this -hmm. is my story and there's some quote from Brene Brown that's like your story once you tell your story you have power over it rather than it having power over you Mm -hmm. which i Oh, I think that that's quote. perfectly encapsulates exactly. that. Yeah.
1: You
2: know. it's, it is something my therapist has dabbled in with me because I think that depression and trauma, as you just said, they really lead to these pernicious hmm. repetitions of ideas, and mm-hmm. and, and and then mm-hmm. the more you fall into those patterns, the more it affirms those preconceptions. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. there, there is like I started getting emotional while you were talking about it, Mike, because there, there is a. I did identify with my therapist like the core belief and core narrative that I tell myself or that I, you know, Mm -hmm. have a habit of telling myself and it is a battle every day to reframe it. And it's something I'm still really working on. But Mm -hmm. just being knowing that I do that has has really helped a lot. It helped me not completely lose it after my last breakup because, you know, I could have so easily told myself the same story that I always did. But because of that progress I made in therapy, I was able to handle it so much better than I've ever handled any breakup and I mean it really mm-hmm. is powerful
4: yeah yeah I've experienced that too and yeah well here we, yeah. all, are. <laughs> here we all are same yes, bat time same bat channel <laughs> same yep so we want to know what you think Do you agree or disagree with anything we've said? Have you had experiences with narrative therapy? Do you love the Babadook or have any personal experiences you'd like to share? Do you have a creepy monster living in your basement that you feed every day? Mm -hmm. Um, We need to know these things. Um, You can share all of these thoughts with us as well as your answers to our homework question by following us on all the socials at Psycho A Pod. I'll post prompts to make sure to follow us and look for them and to just a brief mention I know I think I've said this a couple of weeks ago but I've just been really struggling with trying to um, not internalize social media in a way that's damaging so I have been kind of giving myself a little break but my new year's resolution is to like form better boundaries about engaging so look for more of that but just you know um, you can also join our Facebook group, the psychoanalysis podcast support group. It's private and moderated, and it's uh, where we share a lot of the answers to these questions, plus just anything from our lives. And I post questions of the day, discussion threads, homework questions, but you can post about whatever else is on your mind. It's just a really great group of people that are super kind and super supportive. Um, and you can also email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you'd like to share privately. And our homework question for this week that you can share on all the places I just told you about is: What is the creepiest book, story, or movie you remember reading as a child? Something that was supposed to delight you as a kid, but now you look at it and it's horrifying. Um, we want to know if you have pictures. We love. Why that.
1: is it *Banicula*?
4: Exactly. Oh, I love oh my binicula. God, I <laughs> love Panicula <laughs> <laughs> uh, Speaking of a word I puzzled over for years <laughs> Anyways, so that's our homework question Look out for prompts for that And next for us, we have got a comfort horror episode And it's one I'm really excited about um, We are going to be joined by Randall Colburn from the Losers Club And we're going to be talking about Troll 2 Oh my God! <laughs> God, I love- I so am I- not
1: happy about I'm this.
4: I really am <laughs> thrilled. I am thr- I love this movie so much. Well, I've I've never seen any of the Troll Connected Universe movies. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I've been assured that I don't need to have seen any of them to understand and enjoy Troll Two, um, and th- I use the word "enjoy" loosely because I have yeah, I was no say, idea. Is what there George enjoying? Is oh there yes, really... there
2: is. I will fight you about this. I lo- I genuinely love this movie. <laughs> There's no compunction about that statement.
4: <laughs> well, I am thrilled to watch it. Um, so make sure you watch that before next week. Mm. We are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. You can find us here and there along with some other fantastic pods, including Halloweenies, The Losers Club, Going There with Dr. Mike. Find all of us there by going to consequenceofsound.com, where you can also find lots of really cool pop culture writing about music and TV and movies and just stuff. Mike, where can we find you online?
1: So you can find my Twitter at Mike underscore Snoonian. You can also find uh, my other podcast, The Pod and the Pendulum. By the time this comes out, I think we'll have crossed the 100-episode threshold, which is really exciting. Uh, Lindsay, Travis, and I are currently deep into the Final Destination series. We have our friends from the Horror Queers join us. We have Ryan Larson joining us. Uh, BJ Colangelo joining us. Uh, and these just have been like super fun. To talk about. So, we're a um, podcast similar to Halloweenies in that we like ta- tackle horror movie franchises every week, or we'll do like themed months. Like in February, we're going to be doing all French Extreme Horror. Um, we have guests every week. I, it's, you know, if you like what we're doing here, it's just like a little bit different take on horror. And uh, especially now with like Lindsay on board, like it's just been super fun and loose and we'd go on a lot of tangents (laughs) but they're very enjoyable tangents so you can follow us at pod and pendulum we also have a facebook group facebook.com slash pod and the pendulum which is like a lot of folks from our groups here have been like making their way over, so now I'm like, oh shit! I actually have to put stuff on the group every day, but that's been really nice. Like, it's a very play. I I hate Facebook. Like, I think it's just the worst mm-hmm. site, and uh, I kind of miss MySpace when it comes to social media.
2: I like having a song that plays when people go to my page. Me too.
1: Exactly. <laughs> but I would say like the group, like the groups, are probably the one saving grace of those. Mm-hmm. So. There are some really fun ones. So, yeah. Look for maybe a third show.
4: Uh oh. (laughs) Well, that's now. (laughs) Yes.
1: 2022. It's going
2: to take a while. Well, Laura, where can we find you? Well, I have no idea what's about to come out of my mouth. So, we'll see what happens Mm -hmm. here. (laughs) Um, You can find me on Twitter at Underalls, U N D E R A L L S, just like the. Tiny little top hat that you're wearing over your pee pee hole, underneath Aww. your pants, because you call it your baba crotch. What? But there's
4: a name for that that you put over little boys, uh, the pee pee teepee. Chastity think. What are
1: you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Are we talking about chastity devices? No, no, no. no. no I was going to say so...
2: that for a different episode. I think I have done a chastity <laughs> belt under all sign off. You have, uh, yeah. Uh, no, there's like a real thing. So when you have a little boy and
4: they're, they don't Leaky. have a diaper on, the it just goes all over the place. Yeah, that's and right, because so they piss on, a on you. Pee-pee. So it's a pee-pee.
2: Okay, yeah. you can find me on Twitter Pee-pee-pee. at <laughs> underalls, U n d e r a l l s. just like the pee-pee teepee you wear over your <laughs> tiny little pee-pee because oh, you're a little boy a top and hat. <laughs> we're selling top hat. I'm going to I'm sell on Etsy Babadook branded pee-pee teepee top hats. I mean, we should make that. Yes. <laughs> People would buy that. <laughs>
1: Can our new sign-off be? We've come here to chew bubble gum and piss all over
2: ourselves. <laughs> and we're all in a bubble gum, and then there's just a yes. a, a pissing Stream sound effect. Stream of effects. urine
1: that hits the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> oh
2: my gosh! <sighs> yep. This is what happens follow when me past On Twitter, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and just to finish this thought, because I have to, uh, on Instagram at instaglum. Like Instagram with an, a mood disorder <laughs> and, and I'm sometimes on Halloweenies and losers club. Okay. Goodbye forever. You'll never hear from me again.
4: <laughs>
2: <Aww>, oh, <no. laughs> uh,
4: You can find me at Jim Ferrati on all the socials. You can find me on the losers club should be deep into stand coverage right now. Um and I started a stand read along on Twitter, so look for that. Mm. Hashtag the stand read along. Hopefully by now I'm still doing it. Um but I started reading that today and that I just love that book. So that's our episode on the Duke. Thank you so much for joining us for this. Um I think it was a really good discussion. I love this movie and I'm very grateful for the two of you Aww. right now because I and Aww. for listeners for just like letting us talk about this stuff it really means a lot and this is part of narrative therapy for me is just mm-hmm. finding words for these things and so i just really grateful and on that note we came here to chew bubble gum and take care of ourselves by blocking the wall of urine that <laughs> with <laughs> a pptp with a pptp yeah and, and we're, we're
2: all a of
1: bubblegum.
2: <laughs> but I'm still Woo. peeing.
1: Is it really called the TPP?
2: It is <laughs> called the PPTP. It really is. Yeah. Wow. I'm obsessed with this now.
1: That is. I kind of want to have another kid just so I could use them.